This business meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today we are considering seven Foreign Service Officer promotion lists and 11 nominations for critical positions. We received a holdover request for two nominations that were originally noticed for this business meeting. Uh, Deborah Lipstadt to be the Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism, who has been pending 158 days, and Barbara Leaf, who has been pending 302 days, uh, to be Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. The Chair will honor those requests, and we will consider them at the next business meeting. But let me just say, at a time when the United States and its allies are working to put every conceivable pressure on Putin to stop his unprovoked, brutal, and illegal war against Ukraine, we have to have these nominees in place. There is no substitute for an ambassador going in to see the leader of that country versus a charge of affairs. There's no substitute. There's no substitute for having an assistant secretary of state meeting others in the world as their counterparts. This game is costing us. So for all of my friends who love to wave the flag of how important it is to be leading the rest of the world and how forward-looking we should be, you're not helping the cause. You don't like a candidate, vote against them. But this process of just holding and holding and holding makes no sense whatsoever. The administration has done a superb job of imposing sweeping sanctions along with our allies that are devastating the Russian economy. But there is more to be done. These efforts will be enhanced with Jim O'Brien in place as the sanctions coordinator. Similarly, as we see Putin's army committing war crimes throughout Ukraine, we need to quickly confirm Sarah Cleveland and Beth Van Schaak, who will be instrumental in our efforts to hold Russian war crimes accountable. And as the millions of Ukrainians who have not fled are facing lack of water, food, and heat, we need to confirm Ambassador McKean at USAID for Europe. The humanitarian situation is dire, and it's only going to get worse. Today, we're also considering other important positions, including Assistant Secretaries of State for International Security and Nonproliferation, for Arms Control and Verification, for Middle Eastern Affairs, our ambassadors to Greece, Portugal, Honduras, and Jamaica, and the Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. All of these positions matter. If anything is clear from this crisis, it is that every country, every multilateral body has a role to play in coming to Ukraine's aid and rallying the world to stop Putin. We need them in their place. And I look forward to their swift confirmation. Senator Rush. No, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I, I didn't intend to get into that, but I will re reiterate the numbers again. Uh, I'm, and I'm one who believes we need people in these positions. The people need to be vetted. Uh, they certainly, uh, the documentation has to be completed and uh, we, we do our best in that uh, regard. In the 116th Congress, uh, where I was chairman and you were ranking member, uh, the average time uh, was uh, 94 days. And in the 117th Congress, where you're chairman and I was ranking member, 
the average time is 77 days. So if we're talking about who held up for how long, the numbers don't lie. Anyway, in any event, let's move on to uh, getting the job done. Uh, I'd like to express my support for Jim O'Brien to be sanctions coordinator. The current environment demonstrates how important this position can be. With the United States and Europe finally rolling out new sanctions against Russia, it is import more important than ever that we have someone who can coordinate across the U.S. Uh, interagency and serve as a conduit for our allies on alignment of our sanctions policies. While these sanctions are a good start, we need to do more. Mr. O'Brien should push the administration to truly isolate the Russian economy. It is vital this office receive the support and resources necessary to be successful. That's why I worked uh, with others uh, to specifically provide direct hiring authority to his office. I expect that authority to be used early and often to get the right team in place as quickly as possible. I and many of my Republican colleagues remain extremely concerned by reports that the administration has offered reckless concessions to the Iranians as a last-ditch effort to save this failed nuclear deal. However, it's my hope that Mr. O'Brien can use his experience with other major sanctions regimes to talk some sense into this administration and highlight the negative impact these kinds of concessions will have on U.S. policy. Regarding Sarah Cleveland to be legal advisor of the, of the Department of State, this is one of the most important positions at the department, and no one is disputing her long record of legal and academic expertise in international relations and international law. However, I'm deeply concerned about Ms. Cleveland's record regarding legal opinions on abortion access. In the past, she contributed to and defended a UN Human Rights Committee opinion, which found that one country's domestic laws violated a citizen's international human rights by not providing and paying for an abortion. This finding is starkly inconsistent with U.S. laws prohibiting provisions of uh, promotion uh, or promotion of abortions abroad. For this reason, I'm not able to support their nomination, but I hope to be able to work uh, with her on this and many other issues she will handle if and when she is confirmed. Lastly, regarding Mallory Stewart to be Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control, Verification and Compliance, I've been very clear. I'm deeply concerned about the administration's consultations with our allies and partners regarding a potential change in U.S. nuclear, nuclear declaratory policy and Ms. Stewart's role in advising on those policies. I'm troubled by the destabilizing positions that the administration has been advocating in the arms control space. With China's massive arms buildup and Russia's modernization, we and our allies uh, must be postured to maintain deterrence. Well, I appreciate Ms. Stewart's and the Department's recent cooperation in sharing more of those uh, consultations. I'm still not convinced the administration is listening to the concerns of our allies and partners. So I will also be voting no on Ms. Stewart. There are other nominees on this agenda that were renominated this year, which I opposed in the past. Since I have not received any new information uh, that would change my view on those nominees, I'll be voting no on those nominations as well. There are a few other nominees in this agenda I'll not be supporting, but I understand there's other members who want to speak on these nominees. So so I will move on to that. And Mr. Chairman, I'd ask that uh, members be allowed to, however we vote, record their uh, written no votes if they want to vote no on a, uh, on a person. And I would ask for a roll call vote on Cleveland and Stewart. All right. We will get there. This one comment, uh, I don't want to belabor the point, but one cannot compare the challenges we had with Trump nominees who, when they didn't move quickly, it was because they had deep problems, torture, sexual harassment, lying to the committee, and the IRS, for which they were indicted. Well, I, I can't expedite those people. The travesty is that they were all pushed through the committee, and they were, they were voted for. So uh, in any event, uh, 
Let me move to seek an in-block uh, consideration, except for the ones you've asked for, a roll call vote. Uh, we'll now consider and block the seven FSO lists and 11 of the 13 nominations that have been noticed for this business meeting. We will not consider the two nominees, Leif and Lipstadt, who have been held over, and we will have uh, Cleveland, at the request of the ranking member, Cleveland and Stewart will have roll call votes. Other than that, the list is fully before the committee. Um, is there any member who wishes to speak as to any of these nominations? If not, I'll entertain a motion to move them in block. So move, second. All those in favor will say aye. Aye. All those opposed will say no. The ayes have it, and the, uh, those who are on the list and block will be favorably reported to the Senate. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to be recorded as no one king. Shall, you shall so be recorded. Mr. Chairman. Yes. I would ask to be recorded as a no on Kang, Sunis, O'Brien, Van Schock, Dogu, and Kugler, please. Uh, do you have all of those, clerk? You do. Mr. Shall, shall be recorded. Mr. Chairman? Yes. I'd like, I would ask uh, that I be recorded as a no on Kang, Sunis, O'Brien, Van Schack, and Shall so be recorded. Seeing no others, now the uh, there is presently to be considered a vote on Sarah Cleveland to be the legal advisor of the Department of State, and the clerk will call the roll. No. motion is tied in accordance with section 3 of Senate resolution 27 I'll transmit a notice of a tie vote to the secretary of the Senate thereby giving either the majority or the minority leader the authority to make a motion to discharge nomination the next uh, nominee for a recorded vote is Mallory Stewart the clerk will call the roll Proxy. 
No by proxy. No by proxy. Aye. Clerk will report. And the nominee is favorably reported to the Senate. With that, I believe that all of the business of the business meeting is concluded. Mr. Chairman, if I could just uh, briefly. Senator Van Hollen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Just raise a question about somebody whose name was not on the list uh, today. That's the nominee for the Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. I think given what's happening in Ukraine, it's more urgent than ever that that nominee be voted on uh, before this committee. Uh, the President's nominee was Sarah Margon. Uh, she was nominated on April 23rd of last year. Her hearing was on September 22nd of last year, almost six months ago. Uh, and so I would just ask either the chairman or the ranking member why it is that she uh, is not on this list, even though she's had broad support from uh, both Republicans and Democrats in, in the world of national security and human rights. Well, to answer the senator's uh, question, uh, I have offered uh, her uh, nomination for a vote several times to uh, the ranking member, and I have yet to get approval to have a vote on her. And as you know, we so far have oper operated under comedy, and unless I have an approval to uh, grant her a business meeting where she could be voted upon up or down, we have not been able to move forward. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I don't know if the ranking member wants to comment. I, I just, again, to the chairman's earlier point on the need to have everybody on the field, especially at a moment like this, um, when war crimes are very much a question, it seems to me we would not want to continue to hold up a vote on the assistant secretary for uh, democracy, human rights, and, and labor. Well, um, Mr. Chairman, I, I, I have said over and over again, I'm, I am not going to consent to a hearing on her. She's objectionable for the many, many reasons I've stated many, many times. Uh, I uh, agree with you. I think we should have somebody in that position. I would hope the White House would put somebody else forward, or the chairman would, uh, would hold a meeting. He's certainly entitled to do that. Uh, he operates uh, on this uh, uh, on the condition of comedy, and uh, I, th this is the only one I have held up out of all the ones I've had. I voted no on a lot of them, but uh, I've I've consented to a hearing. I'm not going to consent to a hearing on her. So that's that's where we are on the position. And you, there's two ways to go: Either they can put a new person in for that position, or the chairman can hold a hearing. But I, I'm not going to consent. I, I, Mr. Just just for clarification, I mean we had it. We had the hearing back uh, in in. September of last year. So we've had the hearing. The question is a vote. That's true. And immediately upon the conclusion of that hearing, I said I was not going to consent to her. And I think the chairman would agree that he's been on notice since that moment that I wouldn't consent to a business hearing on her. She's not, not acceptable. Well, Mr. Chairman, I would just, um, I, I will continue to work with uh, you and the ranking member. I, I think this is, a, a, again, a, a very clear example of um, how obstruction is preventing uh, the president from uh, having a full team on the field. And uh, to the ranking member, as you well know, I mean, vote yes, vote no. But uh, blocking the, the democratic process, uh, especially on the nominee who's uh, supposed to be our assistant secretary of democracy, has a bit of an irony to it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
Uh, thank you. I, I would just say that uh, it is true that I could just hold a business meeting and break comedy. I have bent over backwards not to do that. Uh, and I hope to still get an opportunity to get Ms. Morgan before a business committee vote. Uh, and we will see what the future unfolds as it relates to not only her, but other nominees as well. Uh, but with that, uh, seeing no other member uh, seeking recognition, this business meeting is adjourned. And now, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, assessing the U.S. and international response, will come to order. Let me thank Secretary Newland uh, for coming before us today to testify on the crisis facing Ukraine, Europe, and the world, and for being with us yesterday in a classified session so that all of the questions that members would want to ask, some which could not be conducted in this forum, could be answered. So we appreciate you being there. In just 12 days, the world has changed. As we sit here, Ukraine is fighting for its life. A ruthless dictator is shelling civilians, refusing calls for diplomacy, and threatening the stability of a region. As of this morning, at least 470 Ukrainian civilians have lost their lives because of Putin's brutality. At least nine, 29 of them were innocent children. The last 12 days have been an entire lifetime for the people of Ukraine, forced to leave their lives behind, spending days in subways and makeshift bomb shelters, fleeing from mortars with their children in hand, and sometimes they don't make it. The rest of the world is being called upon to stand with Ukraine to make this war untenable for the dictator in Moscow. The United States and much of the world has rallied with impressive urgency and coordination. I commend the administration's efforts, the result of months of relentless diplomacy, to build a strong international coalition that has stood up and imposed sweeping costs on the Putin regime. Today, we, along with the European allies and partners and others, have levied serious costs that are already having a devastating effect on the Russian economy. The Central Bank of Russia is subject to unprecedented sanctions. The top banks in Russia are sanctioned along with Putin himself, and company after company is cutting off Russian ties. We have made clear that with this unjustified, unprovoked invasion, Putin has miscalculated. He has chosen to turn the Russian state into a pariah, and to have the Russian people suffer as a result of it. But I am afraid, and I hope I'm dead wrong, that this may just be the beginning of the fight for Ukraine's existence. We are here, and we're prepared to support the Ukrainian people, but it may be a long road. So while the response of the past 12 days is valiant, it cannot be the end. Until Putin relents, we must keep the pressure on. That means holding Belarus and the Lukashenko regime to account for their role and acquiescence. It means continuing to squeeze Putin's oligarchs as well as the political elites and seizing their access so they feel and respond to the pain. In some respects, Europe has been somewhat ahead of us on this score. I think we should be doing what Europe has done. It means ensuring every bank is cut off from SWIFT. It means pressuring those countries who have not yet ended economic time, ties or arms sales to do so. It means tariffs on non-oil imports. 
and advocating for the private sector to follow the head or the lead of some of our companies to divest and cease operations in Russia. And of course, it means staying laser focused on providing Ukraine every weapon, every piece of lethal assistance, every defense article possible so that it can defend itself. Many of us are working to do just that as we speak and to respond urgently to the personal appeals of President Zelensky and the Ukrainian ambassador in Washington. I hope this week will result in a bipartisan demonstration of support for Ukraine through the omnibus bill as we heed their calls for additional assistance and weapons. But we must also be thinking about the months ahead and recognize that the threat of Kremlin aggression is not going away. I believe we must engage in a revitalized diplomatic effort to counter Russian aggression, not only beyond Europe's borders, but globally. Today, I'm calling on the administration to do just that. I have sent letters to the State Department's regional assistant secretaries asking that each detail their diplomatic strategies to counter Russia. This must be a global effort. We need to match our words with action to fend off Putin's attempts to tighten his grip around the world and grasp at political legitimacy. Most immediately, while I have broader concerns about the JCPOA, I am specifically concerned that returning to the JCPOA will benefit Russia economically at a time when the international community is committed to squeezing Moscow. I'm also extremely concerned that the administration would consider purchasing oil from Venezuela. The Biden administration's efforts to unify the entire world against a murderous tyrant in Moscow is commendable, but it should not be undercut by propping up a dictator under investigation for crimes against humanity in Caracas. The democratic aspirations of the Venezuelan people, much like the resolve and courage of the people of Ukraine, are worth more than a few thousand barrels of oil. These are extraordinary times. And yes, we are all looking for extraordinary measures in response. But we cannot lose sight of our core principles of our basic values. We must turn Putin back out of Ukraine and out of the regions across the world where his influence has grown. In closing, the people of Ukraine refuse to back down. Their cause is our cause because they should not have to fight. They should not have to flee their borders or leave their homes. They deserve to live and thrive in freedom. The fight for Ukraine is a fight for democracy, a fight for freedom, a fight against a murderous dictatorship, and we cannot forget that. Senator Risch. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to Undersecretary Newland for joining us today to uh, discuss Russia's unprovo unprovoked, unwarranted, uh, criminal and murderous invasion of Ukraine. I also want to thank you for uh, appearing yesterday and participating in our closed hearing, which I guess was more of a closed discussion uh, on the issues. I think probably you were impressed, uh, as I was, with the unanimity amongst Republicans and Democrats about how to approach this issue and, uh, and what should be done about it. Uh, I also appreciated your agreement to convey uh, uh, the deep concerns that we had uh, on a... Uh, bipartisan basis on, on some issues that we were facing, and I, I, I truly appreciate that.
I look forward to your information uh, about the administration's actions to help the Ukraine today in open session, the additional sanctions on Russia we can expect, and what the U.S. is doing to assist the massive humanitarian crisis that is growing both inside Ukraine and in Europe. I also ask you to address the administration's largest strategy for dealing with this crisis. My goal for security assistance to Ukraine is simple. Enable the Ukrainian people to expel the murderous invaders from their land and defeat Putin. I'm disappointed the U.S. did not send more to Ukraine before the invasion began, but I'm glad to see the vast amount of international military support that Ukraine has received in the past two weeks. The U.S. has now sent healthy amounts of equipment to Ukraine, but we all know they need more and they need it faster. The international outpouring of disgust at Putin's actions has enabled sanctions on Russia to be more effective than we predicted, but there are still huge loopholes and must be closed. I'm glad the administration has cut off oil purchases from Russia. That said, it is imperative that we do not replace Russia's heavy crude with supplies from the dictators in Iran and Venezuela. We are in the enviable position of having the oil and gas reserves needed to increase production in our own country right under our own feet. It boggles my mind the administration would pander to dictators when we can meet our own needs without blood on our hands. Secondary sanctions on banks that undertake transactions with Russia also have not yet been imposed. This leaves open many different avenues for Russia to continue its transactions as usual. As you know, I've been pushing for secondary sanctions since the beginning of this. I understand uh, that uh, the secondary sanctions are complex, and I understand they must be uh, handled delicately. Uh, obviously, with the waivers that are always provided, secondary sanctions uh, can be an excellent tool. And uh, I predict uh, that uh, they're, they're going to have to be uh, uh, grabbed and uh, put into place uh, uh, at some point in time in the not-too-distant future. I also want to say a word about uh, the people of Russia. We are not at war with Russia, and we do not seek war with Russia. Putin has led the Russian people into disaster. I know how much Putin is suppressing his own people, but I urge them to refuse to be complicit in his crimes. There is much ordinary Russian people can do to push back on Putin's ugly humanitarian crimes. On the humanitarian front, I applaud the work that state and USAID have done so far to prepare for and engage with the huge flow of refugees coming from Ukraine. But the stream of refugees looks to be even larger than estimated. Our EU partners are very capable of dealing with this challenge, but we can certainly assist. I'm particularly con uh, concerned about Moldova, one of Europe's poorest countries, which has one of the largest refu refugee populations per capita. It is struggling with high, Russian-imposed energy prices and may have to deal with the activation of 1,500 Russian troops in its occupied region of Transnistria. This senseless invasion at the hands of a madman is a threat not just to the innocent people of Ukraine, but to all of us in the democratic world. This conflict has immense implications for the people of Ukraine, but it also speaks to the credibility of the U.S. and the West to defend the freedom and sovereignty of countries that want to decide their own futures. We must do more to help the innocent civilians, women, and children who are dying each day, and the men and women who are fighting on the front lines in a war they do not want. I think we all know that this can and will get much worse, and I look forward to hearing more from you in this public forum about what more the Biden administration will do to respond to Putin and help the Ukrainian people. Finally, this struggle that the Ukrainians are going through reminds us that freedom isn't free, as we learned in our struggle to be a free people and that the value of freedom cannot be measured, but its costs can be burdensome in the extreme. However, 
at the end of the struggle, there's no greater gift that one generation can pass to the next generation than the gift of freedom. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator, uh, Secretary Newland, we'll start with your testimony. You know, we, there's a lot to cover, so I normally say if you can try to summarize it in five minutes, but we'll give you a little latitude, and then uh, there's, I'm sure by the attendance here, you see there will be a lot of questions. So the floor is yours. Thanks very much, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of this committee for the opportunity to be with you here today and for the opportunity yesterday to talk in classified session to discuss Russia's premeditated, unprovoked, brutal attack on Ukraine and what the United States and our allies and partners are doing together in response. To start, let me first thank all the members of this committee and the vast majority of members of Congress for your strong bipartisan support for the brave and resilient people of Ukraine and their government over many years, but especially now in the face of Russia's bloody aggression. The United States, together with our allies and partners around the world, stand united in condemning Russia's war on Ukraine, a war that offends human decency, violates international law and the core principles of democracy, and international peace and security, and has created a catastrophic humanitarian crisis. As we speak, Ukrainian men and women fight for their lives, for their country, for their freedom in the face of President Putin's imperial ambitions. We honor their sacrifice and bravery. Slava Ukraini, Geroim Slava. First, what we are doing. We continue to provide defensive lethal security assistance to Ukraine. Ten, just 10 days ago, President Biden and Secretary Blinken authorized the immediate delivery of an additional $350 million of military support. And I'm pleased to say that two-thirds of that has already gotten into Ukraine. And in total, the administration has provided more than a billion dollars in security assistance in just this last year. And with Congress's bipartisan support, we're also facilitating third-party transfers of weapons and have seen unprecedented international assistance to Ukraine from our allies and partners. Uh, second, we are providing urgently needed humanitarian assistance to Ukraine and its neighbors. Working with the government of Ukraine, UN agencies, humanitarian organizations, and European partners, the United States is providing food, medicine, hygiene supplies, healthcare and protection services, shelter support, and other assistance. Last week, Secretary Blinken announced an additional $54 million in US assistance, and countries around the world have met the UN's humanitarian appeal with an additional $1.5 billion in support. But as you know, with 2 million refugees already and more than 1.2 million IDPs, needs will go up. Third, we've imposed severe sanctions on Russia's financial institutions, its oligarchs and political leaders, including President Putin and his cronies. We have levied export controls on key industries and the Russian military in close coordination with almost 40 countries around the world, representing over half the world's economy, and those sanctions have had an immediate impact. We're seeing a continued flight of capital, a tumbling of the ruble that's lost half its value, rising inflation, higher borrowing costs, and evaporating access for Russia to global financial markets. 
There is more on the way from the G7, our EU partners, and countries around the world if President Putin does not end this vicious war. We're also working with our allies and partners to limit the disruption of global energy supplies and to prevent Russia from weaponizing its global energy exports while also accelerating diversification of energy supplies. Uh, we sanctioned the parent company of Nord Stream 2 and its CEO, and the German government, as you know, has canceled its support for the pipeline so that it will not become operational. We are also using all multilateral fora to rally the world in condemning Russia and Belarus. As you know, last week, a record 141 countries voted in favor of the UN General Assembly resolution calling for Russia to end its war and withdraw from Ukraine a historic outpouring of support and international solidarity. Days later, the Human Rights Council overwhelmingly passed a resolution establishing a commission of in inquiry to investigate and call out Russia's human rights abuses in Ukraine. And in close cooperation with our NATO allies, we are strengthening the defense and the deterrence of the alliance's eastern flank. Allies agreed for the first time in the alliance's history to give the Supreme Allied Commander authority to, to deploy NATO's response force, including its spearhead component, the Very High Readiness Joint Task Force, the VJTF, and it is already beginning to deploy. U.S. military personnel in Europe and in its waters now total approximately 100,000. We've more than doubled our U.S. forces in Poland and sent thousands of troops to the Baltics, to Romania, and elsewhere along the flank, along with advanced combat aviation. A number of our allies are also starting to flow forces uh, to NATO's east um, to bolster their presence and to fulfill their NATO obligations. So the message to Russia is clear. NATO is united, and our commitment to Article 5 is ironclad. President Putin has not only attacked Ukraine, he has trashed the UN principle of self-determination of states and questioned Ukraine's very right to exist. He is testing the foundations of international law and he is testing all of us and NATO and the EU and the G7 and democracies around the world. As President Biden said, we are now in a battle between democracy and autocracy and free people, free nations and a free Ukraine must prevail. As Putin tries to reduce Ukraine to rubble, he is also turning Russia into a prison. Credit cards and ATMs have stopped working. Capital controls are biting deeply. Imported food, technology, and other goods are drying up. And the last of Russia's free press has been strangled. All while the government hemorrhages money, money that belongs to the Russian people, to fund its war effort and to prop up the ruble. And last week, President Putin criminalized anti-war protests and efforts to support Ukraine. The so-called consultancy uh, laws with Kyiv can result in 20 years in a penal colony. 30 years of progress in Russia has been wiped out in just 12 days. This is a war launched by one man for his own twisted reasons. It's a war built on lies he's told the world He's told his own people and his military. And now it is a war also built on the suffering and grief of so many Ukrainians and also Russians, parents, spouses, partners, children, who will never see their loved ones again, all because of one man's evil choices. 
Ukrainians are fighting for their nation's survival, but they are also fighting for all of us and for the principles of freedom and democracy that are foundational for our nation and for our allies and partners. Together, we must do all we can to ensure Ukraine not only survives, but it thrives again. We in the administration are proud to work with all of you towards that difficult but righteous goal. Thank you. I look forward to your questions. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, Madam Secretary. We'll start five-minute rounds. Let me start off with a letter that the Ukrainian parliament has sent us, and I want to read one paragraph of it because I think it creates context for everything we're deciding. As you read this, Russian troops are indiscriminately shelling civilians, residential areas, schools, and hospitals. The aggressor is using weapons prohibited by the Geneva Convention and international humanitarian law, such as cluster bombs and vacuum thermobaric bombs intended to cause severe suffering to human beings. And when civilians try to escape the combat zones, Russian soldiers shoot at humanitarian, quote, green corridors, turning them blood red. I ask unanimous consent that the letter be included in today's record without objection. The spokesperson for UNICEF has said one million children have, fleed, have fled Ukraine, calling it, quote, a dark historical first. That spokesperson said, we have not seen a refugee crisis of this speed and scale since World War II. And this is a children's crisis. So against that backdrop, I understand that the, uh, the government of Poland, a very uh, uh, little while ago, uh, after consultations uh, uh, between their president and the government, are ready to deploy uh, and f uh, immediately and free of charge their MiG-29 jets uh, and place them at the disposal of the United States of America. They decided not to do go directly, but uh, and of course they are they have concerns about the, the the backfilling of that at some point in time in some way. Can you speak to uh, that and where we're at in that regard now that the government of Poland has made that decision? So, Chairman, I saw that announcement by the government of Poland as I was literally uh, driving here today. Um, to, to my knowledge, it wasn't pre-consulted with us that they plan to uh, give these planes to us. But as you know, we have been having consultations with them for a couple of days now um, about uh, this request from the Ukrainians to receive their aircraft and were they to donate them, uh, whether we would be able to help support backfill in their own security needs. So I look forward when this hearing is over to getting back to my desk and, and seeing how we will respond to this uh, proposal of theirs to give the planes to us. Well, they've moved forward now, and they have said that their planes are now disposable. They're willing to give it. Uh, the one thing that we have heard consistently is a call for a no-fly zone. I understand the challenges of that. NATO and other countries not willing to engage in a direct conflict with Russia, uh, but giving Ukrainians the wherewithal to fight over their own airspace and to be able to have some control over their airspace is clearly desirable. So now that Poland has made this decision, and it would be my hope that other countries in the region as well, that we would be forward-leaning in finding a pathway forward. Because the one thing about all of this is time is of the essence. If we are going to make a difference, time 
is of the essence. Let me ask you this. We are doing all these sanctions. Uh, there's no one who has been an advocate of sanctions, generally speaking, and certainly in this case, more than I have on this committee. But I'm wondering about cryptocurrency because we are sanctioning all of the traditional financial and banking systems, but cryptocurrency is an opportunity for Russian oligarchs and others uh, to move in a different direction. Are we having our, our Treasury Department and others think about how we deal with that challenge? Mr. Chairman, we are. Uh, in fact, we have in the past, as you know, drained uh, designated hacker wallets from Russia. We have other authorities that allow us to go after crypto. Not only are we looking at it ourselves, we are consulting with our European allies and partners on how we might do more together to close down this dangerous spigot of revenue. Well, I, I think it's going to be one of the essential elements to continue to dry up uh, every resource that Putin can have and to continue to tighten the noose, the economic noose around his ne neck at the end of the day. Uh, lastly, what are we doing in having a full-scale assault? I, I, I said that I sent letters to all the regional uh, secretaries. It seems to me that Putin should feel the consequences everywhere. Yes. And that means whether it be Latin America or Asia or Africa, we need to be at the forefront of pressuring Russia in all of those continents, in all of those countries. Are we actively engaged in doing that? Uh, Mr. Chairman, we are. Uh, not only are we pressing every country that we speak to at uh, the president and secretary's level and all the levels in the department, every single one of our ambassadors has instructions to work with their host nations to try to get them to match U.S. and EU and allied sanctions to the extent that they can and are willing uh, to condemn Russia. And you saw the vote in the UNGA, 141 countries. Uh, there was significant, uh, how should we say, diplomatic elbow grease went into that uh, from allies and partners around the world. And as you know, we have a number of big countries uh, who have abstained from this fight so far, and we are trying to use our influence with them as well to get on the right side of history. I hope they get on the right side of history. Some of them I, I like very much, but they need to get there on the right side of history. Senator Risch. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, uh, I want to associate myself with the remarks of the chairman regarding the JCPOA. And as I told you in private session yesterday, and I hope, uh, I want to say it publicly here, and I hope you'll uh, uh, commit, uh, you will transmit this uh, to the administration, as you said you would yesterday, and that is there couldn't be a worse time for the administration to be trying to come together on a JCPOA and announce it when we're in the middle of the, uh, of the mess we're in right now. Uh, the chairman mentioned uh, reasons for it. Uh, there's another reason for it, obviously, and I think you saw that yesterday, and that is how United uh, we are as the United States Senate in helping the Ukraine and what's going on uh, diplomatically and otherwise uh, when it comes to this struggle. I, I can't think of, a, uh, of something you could do that would be worse to try to tear that apart than announce a JCPOA because we are going to be very divided on it. You know, they started out saying it was going to be stronger and longer. There were two different bumper stickers, I guess. One was uh, stronger and the other was longer. Uh, both of those, as we know, are by the by. They then uh, said, well, they were going to work to get less for less. Well, that's gone by the by. 
and from what everything that's leaking out now, it sounds like it's going to be worse for worse. And uh, I just can't fathom that uh, we want to enter into that at this point. And as the chairman properly notes, it's going to cause a tremendous amount of uh, uh, of uh, cash to be transmitted uh, to the Russians uh, as a result of of a new JCPOA for the reasons he uh, discussed. There's just there's no logical reason to be doing that at this time. Um, look, th this thing's been dragging on. I know, the, I know the administration wanted to immediately reverse what Trump had done, uh, and uh, I get that, uh, but they've been at it now for uh, a year and a half, and uh, it certainly can be put off for another six months. I'm not asking that you end it. I know what you're going to do, and I know, when I say you, I mean the administration. I know what the administration's going to do, and I know how it's going to wind up, but at least put it on ice for six months till we get this uh, mess behind us. So that's the, uh, that's the plea I have on the JCPOA. I think it would be in, in everybody's uh, best interest to do that. Um, as I talked about in our closed hearing yesterday, I hope you will focus on, we hear a lot about stingers, we hear a lot about... Uh, uh, the Javelin, we hear a lot about the uh, uh, Russian MiGs uh, that other countries have. We'd like to get into the fight. But one thing that hasn't been discussed are other uh, surface-to-air missiles between the Patriots, which are, which are the big gun, and uh, the Stingers, which are the small gun, I guess. And I, I really think they could do some good with some of those uh, intermediate missiles, and I, I hope you will uh, convey that to the administration and, and uh, work on that. Finally, let me just close with uh, secondary sanctions. I know they haven't, uh, the administration hasn't reached for the secondary sanction uh, tool in their toolbox yet. Uh, I, I would say and I would urge that uh, the minute we see somebody trying to get around these sanctions or somebody trying to uh, uh, actually do business with the Russians, the secondary sanctions need to come into play. They, they can be used surgically. They can be used uh, in a targeted fashion so that we don't injure somebody uh, through collateral damage, either us or one of our partners. That can be done easily with the waivers. So I would urge again that uh, they keep that tool at the ready in case they need to use it. And uh, if you want to respond to any of that, you got a minute and 16 seconds. Thank you, Ranking Member Risch. Um, let me just say, with regard to um, the weapons that we are sending to Ukraine, as you know, uh, we talked about some of this in classified session yesterday, and we generally don't talk in specifics in an open session. Uh, but uh, with regard to other systems that we might be able to send, we are working very hard and fast on, on that now. Um, so, and we can speak further about it in another setting if you'd like. That's good to hear. Uh, uh, with regard to uh, secondary sanctions, I think you know that some of what we have done already, particularly the export control uh, constraints, has a global impact in the sense that um, anybody seeking to transfer American high-tech, any component, any, anything at all to Russia that has American high technology in it, whether that country is um, Singapore or China or Germany or whatever, uh, has to have a license. So that is our effort to create a global regime here. But as I said, we are also seeking to get more and more countries to join us in as much of this regime as possible. But we'll continue to look at, at all of these things that you, that you raised. Um, look, we're not having a hearing about the JCPOA. I will simply say that there was extreme concern that this is uh, not an issue that can wait, given uh, Iran's 
acceleration of its development of technology towards a weapon. And the last thing we need is this war and Iran with a nuclear weapon. Thanks. Senator Cardin. Secretary Nolan, first of all, thank you very much. And we certainly appreciate the unity that the Biden administration has been able to achieve with our allies and the global community in isolating Russia and providing needed help to Ukraine and Ukrainian people. So we talk about that there is strong agreement to supply Ukraine with the defensive lethal weapons they need. And we've done that, and our allies have done that, countries have done that, and we've been pretty effective in getting that type of equipment uh, to the Ukrainians. So I'm a little bit baffled as to why it's taking so long in regards to aircraft getting into Ukraine. President Zelensky has made it clear he needs it. There is strong unity among all of us that we should be supplying that. And I know that you're not up to date as to the most recent announcements made by the polls in regards to the aircraft being delivered uh, to Germany. But I would ask that if this is not going to be handled quickly, to please advise this committee. Uh, time is of the essence. And we would like to see those planes there yesterday. So uh, if there is additional bureaucratic delays in, in making this available, I think we want to know about it because we would like to be helpful in getting it to the Ukrainians as soon as possible. We mean like today. So if you could just make a commitment to let us know if there's going to be any delays in, in accommodating that, those aircraft, I would appreciate that. I know the committee would appreciate that. Thank you very much. I, I did convey the, the strong bipartisan sentiment uh, of the committee yesterday with regard to these aircraft, and uh, we'll do so again based on this hearing. Thanks. Thank you. So I want to talk a little bit about Moldova and Georgia. Uh, if it were not for the Ukrainian resistance, and if Mr. Putin was able to overtake Ukraine uh, in the time frame that he thought he would be able to do it, I dare say that there would be uh, real concern that Mr. Putin may be on his way to Moldova and Georgia, non-NATO countries. So what steps are we taking today to help Moldova and Georgia, recognizing that if the circumstances change and Mr. Putin believes he has the ability he would not hesitate to cross those borders. He's already has, and he's already in Moldova and Georgia in contested areas that are not contested, but only by Mr. Putin believing they're contested. What steps are being taken so that those countries are going to be in the best possible position to defend themselves in the event that Mr. Putin decides he's going to move more aggressively in those two countries. Well, thanks, Senator Cardin. First, with regard to Georgia, as you know, we have a long-standing security relationship with Georgia. They have also contributed regularly to all kinds of NATO operations and NATO exercises and have received um, lots of U.S. military training and equipment over the years, um, which and that program accelerated quite a bit after President Putin's uh, invasion of Georgia in 2008. So that relationship is strong and continues to be strong. With regard to Moldova, uh, as you know, Secretary Blinken was in 
Moldova, I can't remember, Saturday, maybe Friday or Saturday, and he went with the intention of showing U.S. support and seeking to understand better what their concerns are in the, in the context of this war. And as you know, uh, were uh, Putin's troops to make that landing in Odessa, it's just a short hop up Transnistria and Moldova would be next. Um, we, in response to the president of Moldova's re uh, requests, we are looking at increasing not only our humanitarian support to Moldova because they are also hosting lots of Ukrainian refugees, but border security and energy security and other things that that government has asked for, and we will continue to be responsive as we can. So let me ask one additional question. As early as Thursday or Friday, we're going to pass uh, an omnibus appropriation bill. It's going to contain a significant amount of funds for humanitarian assistance. Uh, is the State Department prepared to be able to implement major supplying of humanitarian needs in regards to the refugees that have fled, as well as the people within Ukraine that need help, are we have the capacity to make sure those relief funds and relief efforts are implemented immediately? We are, Senator. In fact, as we saw these troops mounting on Ukraine's borders, we began working with UN agencies, with the Ukrainians, with neighboring states to stockpile humanitarian support. Uh, so much of what was initially available uh, was the result of that stockpiling. We are now continuing to push humanitarian support into Ukraine, as are the UN agencies and into Moldova, as I said. And Poland is also getting a huge amount of uh, international support, as are Romania, Slovakia, Hungary, other, other countries on the front line. And we will do more together with our partners at, at AID and in the UN agencies. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Rubio. Secretary Newland, is, uh, does the United States recognize Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela? We recognize his leadership in, in Venezuela, yes. Do we recognize him as the president of Venezuela? Is that not, is that not our official position? It is. Um, so why would we meet with a dictator, Nicolas Maduro, without telling Juan Guaido or the ambassador here in the United States that it was happening? That, that I know you told him afterwards. Why wouldn't we coordinate with them beforehand? We did coordinate with them beforehand. We met with the opposition before that meeting. You met with the opposition after that meeting? Uh, I will take that. I think it was the other way around, Senator. Uh, I, I assure you it was after that meeting, and, and certainly the ambassador feels that way. He was not aware of it until after that meeting. Um, you are aware that the Venezuelan oil industry is in shambles after years of mismanagement, corruption, it's a personal piggy bank. They um, produce uh, about less, on a good day, about a quarter of what they are used to produce, what we would all remember as Venezuela. And every informed person in oil industry will tell you that if we were to buy all of it, and we can't because some of it's already contractually committed, it would be an insignificant impact on U.S. economy. So is, is, but, but it would be a huge benefit to Maduro. It would be millions of dollars for his personal piggy bank. So is this meeting, the secret meeting that occurred this weekend, which is published everywhere, is this part of a Russia strategy, or is it part of a general pivot uh, in the broader Venezuela matter? There's zero pivot in our Venezuela strategy, Senator. The first and foremost, and I um, can only talk about it to some extent in this setting. I'm happy to talk to you about it in another setting if you'd like or after. Well, it's not you, that, not because it's classified, but because it's because it's a confidential with a 
another government, uh, another country? For a number of reasons, but first and foremost, the mission was about visiting and checking on the welfare of our incarcerated Americans, the Sitco Six and the other two. And as you know, we have made regular visits to Caracas for that purpose. We were also seeking uh, to get the Venezuelan government back to the table with the opposition in the internationally um, uh, uh, monitored peace talks. And then there were a number of other things that we discussed that I can talk to you about in another. Why did they leave those negotiations, do you recall? They left them because they objected to the extradition of uh, one of uh, Alex their, Saab. Yes, exactly. Yeah, one of the guy that was, uh, that was uh, right. helping them to right. steal gold and sell it to Iran. But I think you'd agree that if they were willing to come back to the table with the opposition, that would be a good thing for the opposition's goals. Actually, I, I don't really think it would matter. Maduro's had habitual, he's a habitual negotiator. Uh, but he never leads to anything. That's why the Vatican won't even host him anymore. Uh, other countries don't even want to be involved anymore. He uses negotiations the way Putin does, habitually, to divide and demoralize his opposition. I, I just don't understand why we think that um, cutting a deal with Maduro now to lift sanctions, uh, as he yesterday bragged on television uh, about that meeting and how it's the, the end of, and as they mocked uh, Guaido, that, that meeting uh, did tremendous damage to the person that we recognize as the president of Venezuela, it's, it's incredibly troubling, and it would mean nothing. We, we would notice nothing. He's more than happy to agree to negotiations. He uses them to divide the opposition and demoralize them habitually, uh, the way Putin has done as well. Um, I only have a minute left. Let me ask you, um, does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda groups are already putting out there all kinds of information about how they've uncovered a plot by the Ukrainians to release biological weapons in the country and with NATO's coordination. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or, uh, or attack inside of Ukraine, is there any doubt in your mind that 100% it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. Last question. Um, I, I am certain that the Russians were looking at their foreign, at their reserves as a way to buffer sanctions. Do you know how, now that we've sanctioned the central bank along with others, what, do we have an idea of what percentage of their reserves are frozen or inaccessible to them? Uh, virtually all of them are now frozen. You notice that the country's been under currency controls for almost two weeks now. And the whole point of putting so many of these top 10 banks under sanctions is to make it impossible for them to get access to, to their cash in hard currency. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for being here and for everything that the State Department and the administration is doing to help Ukraine. As I'm sure you're aware, I weighed in with Senator Portman over the weekend on the importance of providing um, jets through Poland for the Ukrainians after we heard from President Zelensky that that was his number one request. 
Um, and I understand that we are still working on that issue that um, we had not coordinated with Poland before they made their announcement, is that correct? Uh, not to my knowledge, and I was in a meeting where I ought to have heard about that just before I came, so I think that actually was a surprise move by the polls. And that one of the challenges is being able to backfill any planes that are provided to Ukraine. Is there a willingness on the part of other of our European allies to help support this effort? Well, Senator, I think what's most important in the short run with regard to Poland is that they uh, benefit from full air security from the NATO alliance. And as you know, the U.S. has increased our support to Poland, um, as, has, as have other NATO allies. So, and we're also looking at putting some Patriot batteries into Poland. So I think the, the main issue is to evaluate together what Poland's immediate needs are in the, in the context of being a neighbor of this conflict. And I certainly agreed with the line of questioning that you heard from Senator Rubio about the disinformation and um, what, if you want to know what Russia's planning, look at what they're accusing us of. Exactly. To what extent are we working with our allies on the responding to the disinformation that is out there that Russia's putting out? Because obviously the Baltic countries, Poland, a number of our Eastern European allies have long experience with responding to disinformation on the part of Russia. Are we coordinating that effort in any, in any way? Uh, absolutely, Senator. I think you know the State Department's Global Engagement Center, which you all helped us stand up and supported, uh, works 24-7 to, with other allies and partners, not just in Europe, but around the world, to um, bring to light Russian disinformation campaigns and, and who is pushing them. We also work with the tech companies to try to take down false stories and uh, we are working very assiduously on, on all of that now. We're also working to try to get truth into Russia in the context of a complete freeze on, um, on independent news going, going there. And uh, uh, that, is, that is an issue that is of paramount concern to all of us. So how are we replacing the information that might have been shared through uh, social media that is no longer operating in Russia. Are we looking specifically in that area? So what I would say to you, um, without getting into it in too much detail, there are a large number of Russian uh, independent journalists who are now active outside the country who make use of the Internet and Telegram and other channels. Uh, to get uh, truth into Russia. There are huge numbers of influencers and vloggers and videographers who are themselves working to push the truth into Russia. And I think that is partly why uh, the Kremlin came down so hard on independent media. We ourselves were doing uh, interviews at all levels uh, with what was left of Russian independent media and any Russian state media that would that would have us, but we are continuing to work uh, with uh, lots of the journalists that we already had been working with, as have our allies and partners, and, and trying to find as many creative ways as we can to get truth into, into Russia. Thank you. Um, and finally, as you're aware, this, the European subcommittee did a hearing on the Black Sea region 
a month or so ago. And one of the things we heard is that the administration was working on a strategy for the Black Sea. Can you talk about how what Russia has done affects what that strategy might look like in the future? I think the greatest concern is the fact that um, as Putin has installed more and more weapons and more sophisticated weapons onto the Crimean Peninsula. He has used that weaponry to threaten freedom of navigation and to claim a greater and greater parts of the Black Sea well beyond um, territorial limits. You will remember from the, the fall, I can't remember the name of the British ship that came under fire when it was well in international waters. So uh, we have a regular um, rotation of NATO exercises and U.S. exercises into the Black Sea to show presence and try to keep the Black Sea open. But we are also working on the, um, the capability of all of those states on the literal, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey. And I will say that Turkey has um, taken some very strong moves uh, since this mm -hmm. conflict began. Um, under the Montreux Convention to deny warships access. So we are working on all of those things. And then the strategy will, of course, also look at um, cyber collaboration, economic integration, uh, fishing, clean Black Sea, all of those things. Thank you. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman, uh, Under Secretary Newland, welcome. Uh, I've done a fair amount of negotiating in my private sector life. Um, Generally, uh, when the negotiations proceed and I realize the negotiating partner is not negotiating in good faith, I, I walk away. Actually, always, if I'm not perceiving a good faith negotiation, I walk away. I've never ever tried to negotiate with somebody who would refuse to even sit down and talk to me. Um, but in fact, isn't that what's happening with the JCPOA negotiations right now? Iran refuses to, to meet with our negotiators? Uh, so, Senator Johnson, we don't sit face-to-face -face with Iran, but we have nearly completed this agreement on the basis okay, of again, the face-to-face uh, -face negotiations that they do have with our European partners. So, but, but, you know, it's again, not it's, ideal. It's, it's tr but it's true. Iran refuses to meet with us, correct? Uh, isn't, isn't that an automatic admission that they're not good faith negotiations? Why, why, would, why would the administration, why would President Biden participate in something like that? That's a charade. It's not a negotiation. Uh, Senator Johnson, I will say that I too have done a lot of negotiating in my life, and whereas it's not ideal not to sit in the same room, it can work, and proximity talks have been known to produce very good agreements uh, over time. We will, we will see if we can get there on this one. Okay. Uh, following up on uh, Senator Rubio's uh, questioning on Venezuela. Uh, it sounds like you really weren't talking about buying their oil. Is that true? Um, Senator, I'm happy to talk in some detail about all the contours of that trip in, a, in another setting, um, or perhaps um, in, in, a, in a little while. We are still in the process of um, working on a number of things there, but the, the primary purpose of that mission was to go see our eight Americans who are incarcerated. So again, Senator Rubio is more familiar with uh, what their oil capacities are, but it sounds like they really couldn't add much to anything we would do. So I mean, can you just state categorically that uh, we will not be buying Venezuelan oil? We, we won't 
If we're going to buy oil, we'll buy American oil. We won't buy from a tyrant like Maduro. Senator, let me try to put um, this whole oil issue in some context, if, if I may. Uh, when we ban Russian oil, as we are, as the President uh, very clearly did today, uh, that has an impact on all kinds of things. You know, we already have a situation, thanks to the international efforts that we have galvanized, where 70% of, of Russian fuel is stuck. But the particular kind of Russian fuel that the U.S. imports, or had been importing, was heavy fuel. And that is only produced in a couple of countries around the world. So whereas, uh, you know, we have, we want to ban Russian oil, we also need to find a way if we do not want to have um, major economic impacts as a result of this war and this squeeze on oil around the world, we have to find a way to get more capacity okay, into so, the So system. again, you're not ruling out buying oil from the tyrant Maduro in Venezuela. You're, you're not ruling that out. Uh, I uh, will come back to you on that, on that question. Okay. Uh, we have seen some protests in Russia. Uh, it seems like they're being suppressed pretty effectively, people are being jailed. Uh, what information are those individuals getting? How are they getting it? And what is the U.S. doing to make sure that the Russian people get more of the truth and less Russian propaganda? Well, again, President Putin is uh, scared of what we were already doing, so scared that he had to choke off the rest of the what was left of the free press in Russia. But as I mentioned to Senator Shaheen, we have, we and our allies have broad and deep uh, relationships with lots of Russian journalists and lots of Russian brave influencers outside, operating outside of Russia, who are able to push their information into Russia by, by various means. We also have RFERL, which though it has been um, closed down in Russia has a, a relatively sizable listenership and viewership through the through the web, which through the internet, which uh, the President Putin has not yet closed down in Russia. So we're working on lots of different ways to try to get truth into Russia. I will say that uh, brave Ukrainians, whether they are individual citizens with their cell phones or Ukrainian journalists, have documented um, mass. We've the same pictures that we are seeing on our TV are now being packaged by some of these Russian journalists to get back into Russia and to get the truth to them, uh, despite President Putin's effort to blind his own people. I hope part of the truth we're going to uh, be broadcasting to Russia is just how much of the, the oligarchs uh, Putin has, has stolen from the Russian people. I hope we, as we confiscate that wealth, which I hope we do, I hope we lay it out for the Russian people. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Menendez. Um, thank you, Undersecretary Nuland, um, both for this hearing and for last night's classified briefing. Uh, I, I wish the American people could see the determined and strong and bipartisan engagement um, that I'm at least experiencing from this committee and from Congress. Over the weekend, more than 280 members of Congress uh, took a call, participated in a call with President Zelensky. Um, and if anything, I have been encouraged, even surprised at times, by the unanimity uh, within Congress of support for 
um, stronger and stronger measures against Putin and Putin's Russia uh, for his unjustified um, and immoral invasion of Ukraine. Um, you've served for 32 years at least, um, our nation and our public in the State Department and in other roles, and your advice and your insight um, is greatly appreciated and welcome. Um, and I believe that President Biden's uh, forceful leadership, um, the decision to proactively release intelligence in order to make it clear to Russia we knew what they were planning, um, to proactively invest time and effort and diplomatic resources in rebuilding our ties um, with the EU, with NATO, with uh, other vital partners, laid the groundwork for what has been, in just 12 days, a striking, swift, broad action by the West to impose crippling sanctions uh, on Russia uh, and Russia's economy. Um, I'm very concerned about the humanitarian situation in Ukraine. Um, the United Nations is planning for 5 million refugees and 7 million internally displaced people. There are, as of today, 2 million Ukrainians who have fled the country, a million of them children. That's more in 12 days than fled Syria in three years. And I'm hopeful that this week we will pass an emergency supplemental uh, for Ukraine that will be no less than $12 billion and that more than half of that will be dedicated to the humanitarian crisis. And please help us understand the UN's playing a key role, the World Food Program, UNHCR, as well as, of course, USAID, and some other impressive private groups like World Central Kitchen are responding quickly. Our partners and allies like Poland, Hungary, Romania, Moldova, as you've mentioned, are responding. Um, what more can we and should we do to meet this humanitarian crisis, which is coming on top of uh, refugee and food insecurity crises in a dozen other countries around the world? Senator Coons, I think um, you put your finger on it that unfortunately, we at 2 million refugees now, we may not have even half of what we will see here. Um, what I will say is that they are fleeing into, uh, by and large, European Union countries who are relatively prosperous and are doing a spectacular job in their own right of um, welcoming them, managing them. EU agencies are also, EU ECHO and others, uh, working actively with the UN. And, an, and a large number of them are also going uh, to relatives who already live in Europe. But um, that might be just the beginning of this. And I think as it gets worse, we'll have more and more of the infirm, of the young, uh, of those who have special needs. So uh, what we are trying to do is, is to ensure that we are continuing to get humanitarian assistance into Ukraine. You've seen the horrendous pictures of people sleeping, you know, week after week now in subway stations or their bombed out houses, et cetera. The, the needs there appear to be um, moving from uh, early on need for hygiene project products and health products and those kinds of things to now needing foodstuffs and other things. And then, uh, we're trying to help uh, Poland not only um, with, uh, with uh, its ability to flow through refugees, but with its border management, because those, that first day as they come off the border is where it's most congested. Um, and Senator are, Shaheen and I were in Poland uh, just two weeks ago and so are saw, impressed yeah. with the level of partnership. Let me just, in closing, mention... This supplemental will include uh, something many of us have supported, more funding for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, to try and get into Russia and Ukraine 
truthful, accurate reporting. Um, I'm a co-sponsor as well of a resolution that's bipartisan condemning Russian war crimes and calling on international bodies like the ICC uh, to investigate. And I want just to be reassured that we're doing everything we can to document the atrocities against civilians being committed by Russians and to hold Russia's military and political leadership, and specifically Vladimir Putin, accountable for crimes against humanity. So to say there, it is, it is Ukrainians who are doing a, a spectacular job uh, as they confront these horrific uh, incidents uh, in getting documentation and ensuring um, that they get that out to the world and we are preparing as an international community to respond to all of that and to deal with it and to hold, President, uh, to hold Putin accountable as well as those who helped him prosecute this war. Thank you and thank you for your service. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Secretary. I appreciate your willingness to provide this information to us today and again yesterday. Uh, with regards to the aircraft that are now under U.S. control, apparently, uh, MiG aircraft that will be uh, in Ramstein and that will be able to be uh, sent to uh, Ukraine, um, I know there will be uh, hand-wringing and concern about what might happen and how Russia might respond. Uh, but I did receive a note from a friend who said this. He said, it seems to me that this war will be over when Putin is more worried about what NATO might do than NATO being worried about what Putin might do. And, uh, and I know that, that uh, all things um, associated with this conflict have a, a certain degree of risk. Uh, but at the same time, there are people dying. And there is, a, uh, I think, a, a worldwide clamoring, including by our people here, to provide support and help to the people of Ukraine and to help uh, end this, uh, this outrage. Um, you spent a, a lot of your career looking at Mr. Putin and trying to understand his, uh, his reasoning, uh, perhaps not his psychology, uh, but, but there are a number of people that said he's not going to invade Ukraine. He realizes that's a terrible decision, would not be in his best interest, but nonetheless he did. Uh, there are others that are writing, oh, it's because we sort of opened the door to him, or to Ukraine joining NATO that, that, that uh, precipitated this. What, what, what's your view? What, uh, as you look at Putin, why did he decide to go in? Uh, what precipitated this? I, I don't just mean this immediate action, but I mean, why did he make such an extraordinary uh, investment of his country with such enormous uh, repercussions? Um, what, what drove this? And, and I say that not because I'm just curious uh, for the past, but to try and get a sense of where we might be headed. Senator, I think um, obviously those questions should best be uh, directed to Mr. Putin, but I will uh, give you a few thoughts here anyway. Um, I think over the years, President Putin's imperial ambition has grown, and he is dissatisfied with the last 30 years of Russian history and has longed for some time to be the guy that helps recreate the Soviet Union the fall of which he said was one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century. Imagine that, the 20th century. Um, so I think he's had that ambition. I think in uh, the last couple of years, he's been um, particularly obsessed with this and particularly consumed. Uh, he has created, as you know, a whole bed of lies about how the US would use Ukraine as a springboard to Russia or that NATO would, um, and he has frankly made clear in the last couple of days that he doesn't actually think that Ukraine is an independent country from Russia. So I think his 
his interior mind is now out there for, for everybody to see. So that's what makes me worried that not only uh, do we have to ensure that this Ukraine uh, gambit is a strategic failure for Putin for Ukraine's sake, but also for all of the other countries in the region, and his appetite has only grown with the eating. So, you know, we can't allow this to stand. Do you have a sense of uh, what the end game might be for Putin? Because losing is not acceptable, uh, I'm sure, in his uh, psyche. Uh, is there a, an off-ramp? Are there some options that, that uh, you've considered that, that might be ways for this conflict to end? The way this conflict will end is when Putin realizes that this adventure has put his own leadership standing at risk with his own military, with his own people, that he is hemorrhaging the, the lives of the people of, of Russia, the, the army of Russia and their, and their future to his own vain ambition. And he will uh, have to change course or the Russian people take matters into their, into their own hands. But from the US perspective, the end game is the strategic defeat of President Putin in this adventure. Would China have the capacity to uh, influence his decisions uh, at this stage? And are they uh, trying to do so? Uh, the Chinese like to say that they are neutral in this conflict. Um, as we discussed a little bit yesterday, we believe that it's incumbent on all of us, and uh, our leadership is certainly involved in this, and so are many of our allies and partners. I think you know that President Schultz and President Macron, uh, Chancellor Schultz and President Macron talked to Xi Jinping just today to impress upon the Chinese that neutrality is not an option here, um, that this is a violation of international humanitarian law, violation of sovereignty, that they should not want to stand with somebody who would exact this kind of brutality on his own people, that they should be pushing Putin to stop, that they should be pushing for humanitarian corridors, that um, they should be thinking about their own strategic and economic interests as this war ramps up energy prices um, and makes it harder for them, ramps up global commodity prices, and as you know, they just reported the slowest growth in some 15 years of their own. So they have an opportunity for leadership here, and we are all urging them to take it. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I thank you for your opening comments. We are all standing today in awe of the bravery and heroism of the Ukrainian people, uh, of their government, and um, I'm so pleased that this committee and this Congress has, by and large, been able to come together in our support for their efforts. Um, Madam Secretary, I want to thank you personally because I don't know that there is an American diplomat who has fought more vigorously for Ukraine, for Ukrainian sovereignty, for Ukrainian independence over the course of the last decade than you have. Um, first, second, and third, um, we thank the Ukrainian people for what they are doing right now on behalf of global democracy, but it is the U.S.-Ukrainian partnership, uh, an economic partnership, a political partnership, a military partnership that you have helped forge, um, I think that has been contributory to their ability to stand up and defend themselves. And so I'm grateful for the work that you've done 
and for your friendship um, and your candor, uh, as always, uh, time after time with this committee. Um, let me just say, I um, think it's a curious decision by Poland to announce their gift of several hundred million dollars worth of jets to the United States without alerting us first, especially since, uh, frankly, they would be the more natural direct partner with Ukraine, given that these are MiG jets that the Poles know how to use and will ultimately have to uh, help transfer to the Ukrainians. And I look forward to consultations that we will um, have with them about their uh, recent announcement. Um, but I did want to turn just for a moment to some of the questions that have been raised about Russia's role within the talks inside Vienna. And let me just ask you a pretty simple predicate question um, to make sure we sort of level set what this committee needs to worry about. Um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is not the only security challenge posed to the United States today, correct? Correct. So listen, I frankly think it would be national security malpractice for the United States to kick down the road another six months a nuclear deal with Iran, given what this Congress has learned about the progress of the Iranian nuclear program since the withdrawal. To give it another six months is to essentially put Iran on the doorstep of a nuclear weapon. And so, because you've been asked questions already about the particulars of these negotiations, maybe just draw us back for a moment and you know talk to us for a minute about the consequences of not entering re-entering a deal with the Iranians, and in particular, the prospects for a nuclear arms race in the Middle East to be set off by a sort of final failure of the United States and Iran to get back to a diplomatic agreement. Well, thanks for that opportunity, Senator, and thanks for your very kind words. Um, my home state, Senator, we should admit here, um, and a long friend. Let me just say that, as you put it, the last thing we need on top of Putin's bloody war is a nuclear-armed Iran. And uh, you know what we can say in this setting is that nuclear capability of the kind that we don't want to see could come to Iran in a matter of weeks and months if we don't get them back into this agreement. And that is not good for the planet. And to have both Iran and Russia able uh, to threaten all of us in that way uh, would be catastrophic at this time, not to mention what they might do if they, if they teamed up. So we've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, and that is what we are trying to do, and we uh, do appreciate um, the fact that we've been able to come up to the Congress again and again and again to try to work on these issues together. Uh, and, and so just spend um, the last moment here talking about what Russia's role is uh, at that table, what their equities are. I know many of my colleagues are worried about the benefits that may accrue to Russia through yeah. an agreement. How, how do we how do we workshop their role in these negotiations? So I remember earlier in my career working working with the Russians during the the Bush administration, and we were concerned about Iran's nuclear program. And they would say, "They can't do it. It's not it's not going to happen." And then a, a switch flipped. Uh, at, at, at some point in the mid-aught years where they began to understand that Iran with a nuclear weapon could threaten them. And that's what got them involved in working with us and bringing China along in this uh, negotiation. So they have been, they were partners in the first JCPOA and they have been um, actually very helpful in trying to get us back to where we are now. 
first and foremost because a, a nuclear-armed Iran is closer to them than they are to us, and the range of the weapons that Iran would have first could hit them before they could hit us. Um, that said, they also have the, some unique capa capacity to uh, downgrade uranium, et cetera, so one of the roles that they would play in this deal would be to take uh, higher-grade uranium uh, fuel that is only appropriate for weapons and blend it down so that it could be used in reactors, et cetera. Um, there have been, you know, there's, uh, we've had some questions about whether Russia stands to gain financially from this deal. Uh, Russia has relatively small trade relations with, with Iran, so it's, it's primarily in the interest of their own national security and their own concerns about a nuclear Iran that they participate in all of this and offer to be the blender down of the fuel. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, just an observation, they're not the only country who can do that. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So, Secretary Newland, um, unfortunately, you were right about Putin. Uh, and so here we are. We have a brutal, illegal, totally unprovoked, unjustified attack on our ally, a democratic country, a sovereign country. And um, Tonight, as we sit here in Ukraine, they are continuing to bomb civilian targets. Um, they shelled civilians who chose to walk down the humanitarian corridors that they had agreed to. They killed people who were on these corridors. So we have to remember this is, this is something that requires us, along with our allies, um, all countries, really, certainly all freedom-loving countries who care about what might happen to them, to step up and do more. So I appreciate uh, what was said today, um, but we've got to do more, both in terms of military assistance and in terms of sanctions. And it's a matter of days or weeks, not months, that we have to do more because it will be too late otherwise. I think Putin miscalculated. He miscalculated about the resolve of the Ukrainian people and the competence of their military. He miscalculated about the resolve of the alliance to respond. But let's get these planes into the country. I think it's a good sign that today uh, the Polish government sent out a release saying, you can have these MiGs. There are 29 of them. By the way, I wish they would also provide the 18 SU-25s, some of which are dual bomber fighters, because they could use those too. I wish Slovakia would do the same thing with their 11 MiGs, and Bulgaria has 13 MiGs, as far as we know, maybe more. But I hope that you will commit today, and I suppose this is in the form of a question, do you commit to do everything possible to make this arrangement work, whatever it takes? Now, the response that I've gotten from some in the administration is, we're not sure it might make Putin mad. You know, uh, he has invaded his neighbor, and he's killing innocent people, and everything makes him mad. I mean, he said the sanctions are an act of war. He gets mad over the javelins and, and the stingers. So are you going to do everything you possibly can to get these airplanes that the Ukrainians want badly? We've heard it directly from the president. We've heard it from other Ukrainian officials. Can we get these planes into Ukraine to begin to provide some protection for these innocent civilians? Senator, as I committed yesterday, I 
will continue to convey the very strong bipartisan view of this committee that these, these planes need to get to Ukraine. Um, as we discussed in another setting, there are a number of factors to consider here, and there are some mixed views among, among allies and even within the administration, but obviously I will convey your strong views and the strong views of everybody that we well, that I, has spoken today on this issue. My, my, my time is clicking here, but I, you know, it's, not, it's not really a concern to me um, that there is some disagreement in the administration because all it requires is for the president and you know, his team to decide this is the way we're going to go. Um, finally, the oil was blocked today or will be blocked. That's great. Uh, but it took a long time. It took too long. On sanctions, so many questions for you. Most favored nation, I think we should, you know, use our Article 21 ability under the WTO to revoke that. Um, if you have thoughts on that, I'd appreciate it. I think we should seize assets, not just uh, freeze assets. Um, specific question about U.S. sanctions against Russia's biggest banks, including VTB Bank. They don't apply to energy transactions, we're told, until June 24th. Is that true? Um, so all of the things that you listed uh, are things that we are looking at. I, uh, as I said in my opening statement, we are not done with sanctions if he is not done with this war, and we will continue to escalate. Um, so you named a number of the things that, that we are and will look at. With regard to VTB, um, as you know, part of the strength, well, the strength of sanctions is when we can do them multilaterally and particularly transatlantically with our European allies and partners in Japan. Uh, because of the energy dependency of a number of our uh, European allies, we did agree to a, a phase-in of some of the VTB sanctions to allow energy processing for Europe, and that will fade out uh, over time. June 24th. Why, why that late date? By June 24th, it may be too late. It was part of our building of this package with the Europeans to have a 90-day wind, wind down on this energy carve-out. So that, that is, was part of the deal that we struck to maintain unity. My time's expired. So many other questions. But uh, penetrating the Kremlin's uh, information firewall, it seems to me, is a critical step here. To allow the I, Russian I agree people with you, to know the truth, and uh, anything we can do in that regard to be helpful, uh, I'd like you to follow up with us on that, please. I will. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Secretary Newland. And I add my words to those of my colleagues to just commend the cooperation of the United States and the leadership of the United States with other nations. If the if the world wanted to see what U.S. leadership and assembling a coalition of democracies could produce. Um, I believe the world has seen that, and for anyone who's questioned the value of alliances or NATO, I think they understand it now. My colleagues have asked many of my questions, so this is maybe more of a comment. There's 195 countries in the world. Two have Jewish heads of state, Israel and Ukraine. Two other nations, Panama and Latvia, have heads of state who have Jewish family members, but but Vladimir Zelensky is a particular case. His great-grandfather and many siblings were murdered in the Holocaust. Um, his grandfather fought with the Red Army against the Nazis. And yet he has been subject to three assassination attempts 
by public reporting by this invasion by war criminal, criminal Vladimir Putin. And the Russian missile strikes have hit Babinyar, the ravine in Kiev that was the site of the largest single massacre of Jews during World War II um, in September of 1941. And I mention these facts because you were asked by Senator Romney how Vladimir Putin was justifying his actions, and you said he's kind of put it out there. And one of the things that's amazing, this is the person we're dealing with, he, he said that this invasion was needed to denazify Ukraine. So he is attempting to decapitate a governor, government that's led by one of two Jewish heads of state in the world who is the survivor of a family of those who were killed in the Holocaust. And he's doing it in a way where he's putting at risk sacred sites that are known throughout the world and across history for the massacre of Jews during World War II. This is the person that we're dealing with. That, that, just that simple phrase, I'm trying to denazify Ukraine, suggests that he's thinking about this as if we're living in 1945 or 1941 rather than 2020. He's willing to repeat the big lie to, I'm going to denazify this country by killing one of two Jewish heads of state in the world and decapitating the government, repeating the big lie over and over and over again. And even willing to attack these sites like Babinyar, and, and also there's Russia attacks in Odessa going on, and the massacre of Jews in Odessa was even larger later in the war than the massacres at Babinyar in 1941. We've got to win. <laughs> Democracies have to win this. The challenge I think that we're really grappling with is that the strategies that this administration has put together with other democracies are showing great resolve, and the Ukrainian people are showing even greater resolve, and there are early signs of resistance uh, in Russia, runs on ATMs and banks and protests despite repeated arrests that are ongoing. Nations that we wouldn't have expected to participate with NATO, Sweden and Finland, non-NATO members delivering weapons to Ukraine, Germany, which has had this post-World War II policy of not putting weapons into a war zone, willing to deliver weapons into Ukraine, Moldova, which has much to fear, announcing just last week that they desperately want to be members of the EU. What, what Vladimir Putin did in the 2014 invasion of Ukraine and the establishment of these puppet states in Donetsk and Luhansk, everyone could look at those states and see the grim Stalinist camps they were becoming from what had been thriving cities and realize we don't want any part of that. Vladimir Putin is chasing many nations that were not previously leaning toward the EU or leaning toward NATO. He's done the best possible job to chase them in to a Western orientation. We need to continue to, to, to harvest that, and yet the challenge of all of that is that may not be enough to change Vladimir Putin's calculation. There doesn't seem to be easy off-ramps, and we talked about this during the classified hearing that we had yesterday, and I don't need you to comment further on it, but if the world wants to know the character of this individual, there are a lot of ways to measure it, but someone who would 
attempt to decapitate the government of one of two nations in the world led by a Jewish head of state uh, whose family perished in the Holocaust and, and claiming that the motivation behind it is denazification of Ukraine. This tells you the kind of person we're dealing with. That's all I have to say, Mr. Chair. Senator Young. Welcome, Undersecretary. I wanted to follow up on, on the inquiries of, of uh, the ranking member and, and Senator Murphy. Like them, I too am extremely concerned with reports Russia's attempting to link Iran deal negotiations to sanctions imposed on Russia for its invasion. The situation looks to me more like Russia's trying to blackmail the United States, hoping the administration is, is going to sacrifice Ukraine in a misguided effort to uh, finalize an Iran deal at, at all costs. Reports indicate that uh, Lavrov has requested written guarantees from the U.S. with regard to sanctions relief or transactions between uh, Russia and Iran for the negotiations to continue as a precondition for uh, closing out those negotiations. My question is this, Undersecretary. Has the administration provided any written guarantees to Russia that its trade, investment, or military cooperation with Iran will not be subject to sanctions? No. Thank you. Has anything about your negotiations with the Russians changed as a result of their invasion of Ukraine? Uh, Senator, in this open setting, I will simply say that you are right. Russia is trying to up the ante and broaden its demands with regard to the JCPOA, and we are not playing let's make a deal. I'll look forward to following up uh, this line of inquiry in, in a closed setting, but before I move on, uh, in light of the gravity of, of, of uh, this dynamic, how can the administration negotiate in good faith with Russia in these Iranian talks, wouldn't any announced deal be immediately undermined by Russia's ongoing behavior? Senator, we're not negotiating with Iran, with, with Russia vis-a-vis -vis Iran. As we talked about earlier, Russia for its own reasons has chosen to be a participant in these negotiations because it wants to see Iran's ability to get a nuclear weapon constrained. So we, it, this is one of those rare instances where we have the same strategic objective. And I would argue, as I did earlier, that for us, uh, you know, that strategic objective becomes even more important because we don't want a nuclear Iran and a rampaging Putin in Ukraine at the same time. I'm not sure we still do have the same strategic objective. That Mr. argument Mr. might have been made until uh, just the recent days when, when the Iranian, or the, rather the Russian negotiator, uh, put himself on, on uh, the internet, indicating that uh, his, uh, his position uh, was indeed uh, shaped not by, uh, you know, it, I, if I recall, he, he said that his position was, was shaped by the current circumstances um, in Ukraine, what is the recent developments. Is that, is that accurate, that the dynamics have changed on, a, on account of uh, this intervention? And if so, 
does Russian participation undermine the negotiations? What I can say in this open setting is that there may be some in Russia seeking to get extra benefits for their cooperation and participation in seeking to get Iran back into the JCPOA, but they are not going to be successful. Thank you, Under Secretary. I'm going to move on. Uh, just a, another couple of questions here, I'll, I'll bundle together in light of time. China is watching this entire uh, Ukraine conflict with close interest and surely seeking to make the most of the situation. Can you provide more details on the Saturday call between Secretary Blinken and Chinese Foreign Minister, Minister Wang? Specifically, what did Foreign Minister Wang mean when he stated that the situation in Ukraine has, quote, reached a point that China did not wish to see, unquote? Well, I'm going to let um, the Chinese side speak for themselves. Uh, I will simply say what I said in the, earlier in this hearing, that our intention in our regular engagement with China, including Secretary Blinken's call with his counterpart, was to underscore um, that this war is not good for China, that we want to see China use its influence with Russia to get this war ended, and at a minimum to help get these humanitarian corridors going, and that if they are concerned about their economic situation, as they should well be with the lowest growth rates in 15 years, that this war is contributing to it. I'm out of time. Thank you, thank Under you. Secretary. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you for your great work, um, Madam Secretary. Um, as you may remember, you and I discussed uh, in a hearing before this committee in December the fact that the United States can't preach temperance from a bastool when it comes to Russian en uh, energy. Uh, at the same time as many voices were railing against Europe for their reliance on Russian natural gas, American fossil fuel companies were importing nearly $20 billion of Russian oil just last year. And at that hearing, we discussed the fact that American consumers were unwittingly financing the ill-gotten gains of Putin and his inner circle, the same oil garks responsible for enabling Putin's human rights abuses within Russia, and now the unjustified invasion of Ukraine. President Biden made the right decision today, uh, and I applaud him for that. Now we need to make it a permanent ban uh, to build on the steps that the president announced today. We have to permanently wean ourselves off of corrupt foreign oil and gas by investing in a clean energy revolution. Uh, I introduced legislation, the Spigot Act, last week to do just that, and I think we should enact it so that we have that permanent ban. Um, Madam Secretary, do you agree that there would be value in a comprehensive United States government report that lifts the veil on oil and gas oil gucks, uh, and their involvement in a vast array of Russian human rights abuses? Uh, Senator, I love the word oil garks. Um, it sounds like a very good idea to me. Excellent. Um, the, the reality is, though, that the only way that we can do that uh, and make it sustainable is if we can prevent these fossil-fueled conflicts uh, by ending our own addiction to oil. It happened in the Middle East. It's happening here. And uh, President Biden acknowledged in making today's announcement 
that we can't wait for big oil to do the right thing, uh, we will be waiting for as long as it takes for carbon to become a fossil fuel. So we have to act as a Senate in order to take those steps. Uh, on the question of the nuclear power plants in Russia, how is the United States supporting efforts by the International Atomic Energy Agency to ensure the continued safe operation of all 15 Ukrainian nuclear plants? Uh, so, Senator Merkley, I think you know that the IAEA is trying to negotiate some rules of the road between Russia and Ukraine as Russia tries to seize um, physical control of all of these plants, even as it insists that the Ukrainian operators continue to uh, operate the plants for them. Uh, you know, I think the... Um, the attack on Zaporizhia was a wake-up call for not only Ukrainians and, and Russians, but for the whole world about the, the danger of com close combat near these facilities. So we are strongly supporting this effort to negotiate safe practices. And as you know, at Zaporizhia, the Ukrainian operators performed magnificently in closing down um, all but that last bit of power that is needed to, to keep the core from melting down such that it was less subject to, to an accident. So I think that also speaks to all the work that they have done since Chernobyl on nuclear safety. They are some of the best in the world now, frankly, with our support over many decades. Uh, President Biden nominated Laura Holgate to be his ambassador to the International Atomic Energy Agency, given the potential threat to the safe operation of Ukraine's reactors and Ukraine's overall energy security. How important is it that Ambassador Holgate be confirmed by the United States Senate without delay, given what we're seeing in Ukraine right now? Extremely important. Laura is a friend of 20 years and an excellent specialist. Thank you. I agree with you, and I hope we can get it on the committee's agenda uh, very promptly. And how concerned are you that Ukraine's other nuclear facilities could be in the crossfire, uh, be subject to a deliberate attack? I think we're all concerned that the Russians want to gain uh, physical and military control, at least of the outskirts. Um, and so, again, we are continuing to work with the Ukrainians on safe procedures, and we're supporting this IAEA initiative to get some rules of the road going. We'll see if the Russians do more than pay lip service to it. Uh, uh, I agree with you 100%. We just have to move uh, very, very rapidly if we're going to deal with these threats as they're unfolding. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Undersecretary Newland, thank you for testifying today. We are sitting here watching the most significant military conflict in Europe unfold since 1945, since the end of World War II. And I'm sorry to say that this war, I believe, is the direct result of repeated mistakes made by President Biden and the Biden administration. Two mistakes in particular. Number one, the disastrous withdrawal in Afghanistan and surrender to the Taliban that emboldened our enemies across the globe. But then number two, with respect to Russia and Ukraine, very specific mistakes. You and I have talked at great length about Nord Stream 2. As you know, this committee and the Congress won a bipartisan victory stopping Nord Stream 2 in 2019. I authored that legislation. As a result, Putin 
was deterred from invading Ukraine. When Joe Biden became president, he came in bound and determined to surrender the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to Russia and Putin, notwithstanding the enormous risks that came from it. When President Biden surrendered to Putin on Nord Stream 2, waived the sanctions that had been passed by Congress, at that time, Ukraine told us, if you do this, Russia will invade Ukraine. At that time, Poland told us, if you do this, Russia will invade Ukraine. At that time, I told the administration, and others on this committee told the administration, if you do this, Russia will invade Ukraine. We will see tanks in the streets of Kiev. I wish those predictions had proven wrong. This weekend, all 100 senators were on a video conference call with President Zelensky from Ukraine. President Zelensky told us if the United States government had put sanctions in place last year on Nord Stream 2, Putin would not have invaded Ukraine. And yet the administration was bound and determined to continue surrendering to Russia, even as Russian troops massed on the border of Ukraine, so much so that the White House put political pressure and forced 44 Democrats to vote to support Russia and Putin just weeks before this invasion. Now, after the invasion, finally, once there were Russian troops invading Ukraine, finally then, the Biden administration was dragged, kicking and screaming, to implementing sanctions on Nord Stream 2. As soon as you did, Nord Stream 2 declared bankruptcy and fired its employees. Now, in my judgment, Putin does not believe any promise from Joe Biden to maintain sanctions on Nord Stream 2 is credible. I think Putin is gambling that when the crisis passes, the sanctions will be lifted and Nord Stream 2 will be turned on. I've introduced legislation to make Nord Stream 2 sanctions permanent. In your judgment, do you believe sanctions on Nord Stream 2 should be permanent or should the pipeline be allowed to be turned on? Senator, I think Nord Stream 2 is now dead. And as you have said, it is a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. I don't think it will ever be revived. So you don't think I, it will. So I, let me reiterate, reiterate my question. Should the sanctions be permanent as a matter of law in your judgment? Uh, I don't think it, it matters one way or the other. I think the pipeline will never come back. To so you're life. testifying you have no objections then, and state has no objections to Congress making the, the sanctions permanent. Um, I, you know, we haven't looked at what this would do, but I don't think it's relevant one way or the other. Well, it is relevant because Biden waived them once in the face of massive congressional pressure. Senator, and, and put politics ahead of national security. And I believe Putin believes Biden will do it again. Senator, when, when the administration announced sanctions on Russia, it glaringly exempted energy from those sanctions. Now, this morning, the Biden administration listened to calls from me and from many others to finally include a boycott of Russian oil and gas. That was the right thing to do, but it should have been done at the outset. But Europe continues to rely on Russian energy. In your judgment, will our European allies follow suit and also boycott Russian energy? As you have made clear, Senator, and as we all know, the Europeans have a much higher level of dependence today to heat their homes, to keep the lights on. Is the Biden they administration are, are, pressing the Europeans to end their reliance on Russia 
And is the Biden administration pressing them to rely on alternative sources, including American energy, which is abundant and doesn't fuel a dictator like Putin? So among the things that we have done as this crisis was emerging and since it started was to ship more American LNG and to create more global alternatives to Putin's gas going into uh, Europe, as you know. There are six applications with our... pending with the Biden administration to export LNG. None of them have been improved. Do you have any expectations that any of them will be? So the, Europe, the European LNG terminals right now are at full capacity to receive. Okay, you're not one of the, the things, One of the things that we are pressing Europe. Are you going to answer on, the question? Can, can, I, can I try to you answer, can answer the question? You can answer the question. <laughs> can I try to answer the question? We have taken advantage of this tragedy to again speak to Europe about its over-reliance on Russian energy. The question was simple. Do you anticipate the applications to, to export LNG will be approved? You're not answering that question. I, I frankly don't do LNG licensing. I expect that uh, licenses will be approved for as much LNG as can be shipped. Thank That's what I expect. Much. But I don't, you know, have responsibility for that, so I don't actually know how it works. But, Senator, I have to say to you, President Putin was going to launch this vicious, brutal war with or without Nord Stream 2. That's not what Zelensky told us. That's... Uh, you know, uh, that, is my, uh, that is my opinion. That's also not what you said when you testified before this. The time of the senator has expired. Senator Merkley. Ambassador Newland, uh, thank you for being with us today. Reflecting on the fact that the people of Ukraine in 2004 launched the Orange Revolution to essentially say an unfair rigged election had been held and insisted on a new election being held, and they got that, that new election. And 10 years later, the people of Ukraine launched the Revolution of Dignity, and uh, the result was that the leader, Yanukovych, who was subjecting Ukraine to the shadow of Russia, fled the country and was impeached. And in 2019, a patriot named Zelensky proceeded to win by a landslide campaigning against corruption. Time after time, the people of the Ukraine have said, we choose government by the people, not the Russian model of government by a dictator. And perhaps nothing is more threatening to Putin than having a neighbor, a close cousin, if you will, choosing government by the people. So here we are today with Putin determined to crush Ukraine, engaging in siege tactics, bombardment, and shelling of population centers. Untold numbers of civilians will die. A thousand residences have been destroyed. 200 schools have been destroyed. I anticipate, but I ask this as a question, that we are going to continue to see this siege strategy by Russia attacking population centers, killing civilians, and driving millions of people out of the country. Is that a fairer expectation? I don't think that Russia's tactics will become less brutal, Senator Merkley. I worry that they will become more brutal as they become more desperate that their vicious military campaign is slowing, is stalling, is not succeeding because, as you said, the Ukrainian people again and again and again have stood up for their freedom, have stood up for their choice, and now when it's a matter of life and death, they are doing it again. 
and not just for them, but for all of us. So seeing the determination of the Ukrainian people to resist Russian strategy and Russian oppression, it seems like we can anticipate that Russia will face a long-standing insurgency of all kinds of, of proceeding to smuggle weapons in, anti-tank weapons, anti-plane anti weapons, uh, in improvised explosive devices, uh, this insurgency. And in combination, we're seeing the, the, the current sanctions having a huge impact on the Russian economy. So is the combination the fact that Russia is going to face an enormously determined insurgency and crushing economy give us hope that there is a deal to be struck or is, with time, or is Putin so determined to bet his, his presidency, his, his office on crushing Ukraine that this, there's nothing that's going to stop this, this train until he's, until he's removed? Senator Merkley, only President Putin knows if sanity will ever prevail inside his own head, but it is clear that Russia will lose this conflict, whether they lose it quickly or whether they lose it extremely uh, slowly. Um, it is only, it is a matter of time. The problem is that if the, this can be lost quickly, many, many, many lives will be saved, which is why we have to continue to pour on the economic pressure. We have to continue to support the defensive needs of the Ukrainian people and help them to resist because, as we've said, they're fighting for themselves, but they're also fighting for us and our way of life. So our strategy is maximum support for the Ukrainian patriots and their opposition to Russian uh, military occupation and, and forces, uh, massive humanitarian assistance, massive economic uh, pressure on the government of Russia, and I fully support that threefold uh, strategy uh, and just ac accentuate the need to do everything we can to coordinate the world to support it. And, and I praise the Biden administration for having brought together such a, a significant coalition of freedom-loving nations to be engaged in supporting Ukraine. And so I just want to, to, to close by noting this is such a representation of the challenge we face worldwide in the vision of authoritarian control of people, with control of the press, control of freedom of speech. We see Russia crushing every form of free press in its nation, shutting down every form of social media it can, prevent the Russian people from knowing what's going on. And then we see Ukraine, which in, embraced government of, by, and for the people. We have to stand with the people of Ukraine, and thank you very much. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. Uh, th thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, good to see you again. Thanks for spending time with us in closed session um, yesterday. You know, earlier today, Ukrainian President Zelensky asked the Parliament of the United Kingdom to designate Russia as a terrorist country. Is, is Russia a state sponsor of terrorism? Senator, it's, it's, it, you know, we had not put it that way before, but I have to tell you that every day that goes by, as they commit these egregious, brutal acts on the ground. Um, it's something we should look at. And um, one of the things we visited about a little bit last night in closed session, I want to go to an open session now, and that's 
Um, the Russians involved with the Iranian nuclear deal and negotiations there, it does seem, as I mentioned, incongruous to me that we would be dealing with Russia as a somewhat of a partner in coming up with an Iran deal. At the same time, what we see is this brutal terrorist murderer, Vladimir Putin, killing people. So I have a lot of problems with that decision regularly. But now, I see the Russian envoy recently bragged about how much they helped Iran get a much more than they would have expected in this Iranian deal with the United States. And the envoy stated, quote, realistically speaking, Iran got more than, frankly, I expected or others expected. So that's from us, the United States. You know, you know, the people on this side of the aisle are not for this Iran deal at all. We think it's a mistake for our nation and our nation's security. The reports indicate Russia worked to secure Iran's rights for nuclear energy to, and to remove sanctions. So how much money is Iran going to get from this purport, these proposed sanctions relief as part of the Biden administration Iran deal that they're cutting now while Russia um, is in the middle of attacking Ukraine? So, as you know, Senator, if Iran comes back to the JP JCPOA and we, and we uh, come back into the deal and stop their nuclear development and stop their ability to get a bomb in the short run, uh, they will get access to some of the funds that have been frozen. That is, that is part of the deal. Um, that said, Russia is not doing this out of the goodness of its heart. Um, it is doing it because it, too, worries about an Iran that lives closer to Russia than they do to us having a bomb that could threaten them. When uh, John Kerry negotiated that last deal, and uh, he said, well, of course some of this money is going to be used for terrorism, and we know that Iran did use some of the money for terrorism, do you expect some of this sanctions relief is going to be funneled to terrorist proxies and activities by Iran? Uh, we are working as, as hard as we can in the crafting of this deal to ensure that the Money is used for the needs of the Iranian people and, and not for external aggression. In terms of the, the Black Sea, and uh, as we had a chance to look at some maps uh, last night and we think about an overview of the Black Sea, you know, I think about what NATO did very successfully with the Baltic Air Policing Mission to safeguard yeah. the integrity of the NATO alliance members a number of years ago in terms of airspace. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if that could serve as a model for efforts to maintain a robust NATO presence in the Black Sea. So what are your views on NATO establishing a Black Sea maritime patrol mission, you know, a regular rotational maritime presence in the, back, in the Black Sea? I've personally been in favor of it for a long time, and as you know, NATO has a regular exercise schedule, as does the U.S. I think what we have not done is take an appropriate account of what it meant when uh, Putin seized Crimea and then began putting all kinds of advanced weaponry on it, and that gave him the capacity to close aspects of the, of the Black Sea in a way that we cannot tolerate, and we need to get back to that business. Okay. Uh, in terms of energy security and uh, the decision made by the president today, which I agree with the decision, I think that energy to replace what we've gotten from Russia, uh, which ought to be coming from the United States. I think it's a mistake to go and ask Iran for more energy, a mistake to go to Venezuela for more energy, which is what seems to be what this administration is doing, going from one dictator, thug, uh, to, to another. And can I get your thoughts on that? So, Senator Barrasso, in the context of, first of all, high energy prices even before we got into this conflict, 
then the impact of the war on energy prices, and then the impact of sanctions. As the president said today, there is, is you know, going to be some pain in, in this for us. What we are doing is going all around the world working with partners and organizations and entities to try to increase the amount of oil on the market. Uh, Russia, I think you know, 70% of the oil that it puts on the market has already been constrained by a combination of sanctions, but also self-sanctioning of trading entities. So that is a massive loss to the global need. So frankly, we've got to look everywhere that we can, including in terms of increased US production, Canadian production, Mexican production, uh, you know, the Japanese are, are, are shipping gas now to Europe. We've got to all work together to increase the supply so that the pain of all of this goes primarily on Russia, which is losing revenue and dumping product, in fact, and, and paying a high price for that, and less on us and the American consumer and the European consumer. And I appreciate your comments that energy prices were high prior to all of this, and that to me is a direct result of the... Uh, policies of this administration. As, uh, as John Kerry, former Secretary of State, said, he hoped that what was happening in Russia and in, by Russia and Ukraine did not distract from his climate agenda. And I think that is a very terrible mistake to be the position of the United States. Thanks. Thanks, Madam Secretary. Senator Booker. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, it's so good to see you. Thank you for staying for this long hearing. You. You're at the tail end here. Um, uh, I, we talked yesterday in the classified briefing about uh, food issues. Yes. And this data you know, but you know, Russia and Ukraine account for roughly 14% of the global wheat production, and even more so, about 30% of the global share of exports. Um, we are already seeing unprecedented increase in global food insecurity around the globe. Uh, due to COVID-19 and, of course, the climate change impacts which we're seeing in places like Afghanistan. The World Food Program has already issued, uh, before the Ukraine crisis, a special appeal uh, for $6 billion to cover uh, increase in assistance uh, that it's going to be providing to literally the tens and tens of millions of people, uh, including millions of children, uh, from starvation and death in places like Afghanistan and, and the Horn of Africa. The crisis is already having an impact uh, on what is an already dire situation with making it worse. Wheat prices jumping almost 50% and hitting records highs. So uh, I'm seeing already this omnibus shape up, and I have a lot of concerns that it's not going to be anywhere near meeting the crisis. The spending bill that we're seeing is going to include billions of dollars for humanitarian assistance that can be used by the State Department in Ukraine, but also some flexibility, I'm being told, that ar around the globe. And I expect a substantial portion of these funds will be provided through the um, Migration and Refugee Assistance Program. And I guess um, with your earlier comment to Senator Coons, where you said that a lot of the resources we're putting there won't even, I think the quote, won't even have half of what we need, given that the growth of this refugee crisis is going to probably come. I, I'm wondering, do you think the State Department will have the ability to really use any portions of these emergency MRA funds to meet the needs of refugees not just in Ukraine, but also around the globe. So Senator Booker, I want to thank you for raising these issues yesterday. I've already um, taken them back uh, with regard to what it means when 
a Ukraine at war may not be able to plant this season and what it means to global food insecurity. And a lot of smart people had apparently already been thinking about this. And uh, we are uh, meeting on it and planning on it, including how to use some of this support that the Congress is looking at giving at a, us, not just in Ukraine, but for the larger impacts globally of that breadbasket not being able to supply. So we will work with you on all of these issues. I, I am so grateful. And, and I'm wondering, is there a plan already in place, given our how much our infusion of resources was propping up the Afghan, Afghani economy for 20 years and then pulling us out and all the other military uh, um, civilian uh, uh, diplomatic corps out of there, crashing their economy in addition to climate change, in addition to COVID. We know that right now, unless something changes, uh, uh, roughly 1 million children will die alone of famine. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, what is our ongoing commitment to that crisis? So we've been engaged in a lot of different efforts to get humanitarian support, appropriate humanitarian support directly to the Afghan people, including um, increasing licensing for humanitarians, both our own and other internationals, increasing our own contributions to UN agencies that are active in Afghanistan, as well as trying to create uh, banking flexibilities for remittances and other things that are going to alleviate the cash crunch, we can arrange a, a separate session I, for I would, you. I would that's, yeah. appreciate that. In my yeah. one minute, I, I just I know you're on top of this issue, but I really would like uh, your testimony. Um, obviously, we've seen reports that refugees from ethnic and racial minorities yes. uh, in Ukraine are experiencing discrimination as they try to flee Ukraine. Um, uh, many of them, uh, we've seen images of them being blocked uh, from, uh, the, the, from the ability to enter other countries or in many ways get the kind of resources other Ukrainians are. So can you just tell me what the State Department's doing about this to encourage our European allies uh, to process all refugees coming from Ukraine equally? And what's the State Department doing to ensure that our assistance is being used in ways that adheres to our humanitarian assistance principles neutrality, impartiality, and independence. So, Senator Booker, it was a very acute problem, as you know, in the first days of the conflict, as uh, a number of uh, students and workers from other countries, as well as uh, Ukrainian Africans and others, tried to, tried to get out across the borders and faced uh, significant discrimination, primarily on the Ukrainian side out of local ignorance, I will tell you. And Secretary Blinken took that issue up immediately with Foreign Minister Kaleba, and within hours we began to see the situation improve. We've also done advocacy for specific groups that have gotten trapped, groups of African students, Indian students, who we helped to um, get on a bus to get out of out of Ukraine when we had some advocacy from the Ukrainian from the Indian government. So we will continue to take on those cases as we see them. We are um, largely not seeing the problem in EU countries. I think we were dealing with quite a bit of early ignorance at the local level in Ukraine. Great. And I just want to say, you can see from both sides of the aisle, this is a very emotional and as well as uh, patriotic uh, um, uh, interest and passion. We're putting a lot of time in here. But I know you and your team <laughs> have the same uh, deep feelings, have the same uh, passion, patriotism, concern. I can only imagine you all are working around the clock. And I just want to give you my gratitude for that commitment and 
uh, the incredible work you all are putting in and the hours, I'm sure, as well. Thank you, Senator. I, I just want to say that on behalf of the men and women of the State Department, who I'm proud to have been a part of for most of my life, to see uh, folks uh, in every generation of service and all around the world jump in and say, what can I do? And to participate and put their intellectual capital, their time, um, into this has just been amazing. And it's the best of America and the best of the State Department. Thank you. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Secretary, uh, for your service. And thank you for being here for such a long hearing. I have three basic questions. The, the first is, what's the status of the negotiation as it relates to the humanitarian corridors? We're reading different things. I'm wondering what's real and what's not and what's possible. So on the humanitarian corridors, I think you know we're on our third day of disappointment. Um, where uh, we thought we had something agreed. UN agencies have been the main negotiators, ICRC and um, UNHCR. And in those, the, the first two attempts, we actually had local firing by Russian forces on folks seeking to flee. Uh, we're now attempting, or they are now attempting to, uh, to try again in Mariupol. Uh, we also had, in those first two rounds, very cynical Russian response, sure, you can have a corridor up to Russia, but right. not into the rest of Ukraine, which was obviously rejected. Um, so we're trying, they are trying again now in Mariupol, and we'll see how that goes. So there were sort of two issues. One was the ridiculous, sure, you can get a corridor back to Russia. The yeah. other, I guess I'm wondering whether that was a sort of command and control problem where the locals, uh, so that, that's not your assessment. Your, your I, assessment is they were violating it from the, from the jump. I, I can't say whether it was local malfeasance or more general malfeasance on the part of the Russian military. Neither would be beyond comprehension, but it was egregious and yet another violation of human rights in Ukraine. Absolute atrocity, a war crime. Um, uh, Belarus, um, is the free world doing enough to punish Belarus? So we've now imposed uh, sanctions on Belarus that match what we have done in Russia. That was part of the package that we imposed uh, last week. And we're continuing to look at other ways to squeeze the economy that fuels um, Lukashenko's rule. And we're continuing to look at, at leaders in, in Belarus. Um, I would note here that um, it's pretty clear that Russia would have liked to have seen more Belarusian military participation in this conflict, and there's been a lot of uh, lack of enthusiasm for that and even desertion. So, And when you say lack of enthusiasm, at all levels? At the sort of soldier level all the way up to certainly government at, leaders? Certainly at the soldier level. Fair enough. Um, we're seeing a lot of resistance from countries that have traditionally had a close relationship uh, with Russia, uh, certainly over the past uh, uh, decades, um, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, um, outright refusing to participate in this invasion. Um, and my assessment is that they don't want to stipulate to the legitimacy of, of what's happening because they may, in fact, uh, be next. So what's the State Department's view of those relationships, and how do we without sort of overplaying our hand, how do we be supportive 
or become more supportive of, of Uzbekistan, of, of Kazakhstan, of these of these countries that um, very well could be next yeah. um, if this becomes a successful precedent. So since their independence, we've had very uh, we've had relations with all of those countries. But I would say that in the last year, we have really accelerated our work with them collectively, what we call the C5 plus one, but also our effort to work with them individually. As you know, in the aftermath of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, there were a lot of uh, issues. They collaborated and helped us in, in getting some of some Americans and, and LPRs across. We have uh, other things that we work with them on. But we're also working with them intensively on having diversity of economic options, diversity of political options. And in the aftermath of the um, uh, events in Kazakhstan of a couple of months ago, the Kazakhs have come back to us and said that they are not interested in getting involved in Ukraine, as have another, a, a number of the other countries there. And we think that any effort by uh, Putin to involve the CSTO collectively will also fail in this conflict because, uh, as you say, they have their own independent interests. And it's not an easy decision for them because they're also very dependent. Final question. Um, uh, and I can take this for the record if you don't want to do this off the top of your head. I just want to be reassured that um, we are constantly assessing and reassessing and re-estimating the number of refugees that we expect. I've seen this sort of range of yeah. between one and five million. Um, that, I'm sure, was based on some analysis, but it seems to me that that analysis has to change in real time if we're already approaching two million uh, as of today or around that, that, that number. So I just want to be reassured that people are not going to stick with the five million if it looks like we're going to break through that threshold. I will say, Senator Schatz, that we unfortunately internally estimated 5 million from the beginning and bef before the invasion even started, just based on how broad it was, um, or it, could, it looked like it was going to be. So obviously, we will have to reassess if it goes above that. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Madam Secretary. I'm grateful for your uh, your wisdom and experience and passion on this uh, issue. Thank you for the briefing uh, last night in the classified setting. And uh, let me associate myself with the comments others have made about the uh, efforts to transfer the Polish MiG-29s uh, to Ukrainians um, and Ukrainian pilots. Uh, but I, I want to raise another effort in, in the defense of Ukraine, uh, which was the first item that the Ukrainian parliamentarians mentioned uh, in this letter they sent to members of uh, Congress today, uh, which had to do with missile defense. Uh, because as we've seen in published reports, um, we don't see that many Russian planes in the air yeah. these days, but we do see a lot of missiles. Yep. They're incoming. In fact, uh, published reports I've seen estimate over 600 missiles. And here's the number one ask from the Ukrainian parliamentarians. Military assistance suitable for countering Russian attacks and military advances. Ukraine needs surface-to-air missile systems, such as Iron Dome or NASAMs, to protect civilian areas from incoming Russian missiles. We implore the United States to work with all allies and partners to provide Ukraine with these life-saving missile defense systems immediately. Can you talk to both the systems that they've requested there and what the status of our efforts to secure those would be? 
Uh, Senator, what I'd rather do is talk to you about the specifics uh, in, a, in a classified setting, but I will tell you that uh, we have provided a, a large number of counter-battery radars, and we are looking at some of these other things, as I mentioned at the top, um, that, uh, that you mentioned. Well, let me ask you this. Are there any um, political obstacles to moving forward with either of the systems that were mentioned? So I would only say with regard to Iron Dome, you can't just, you know, snap your fingers and you have an Iron Dome. It takes training. It takes the ability to emplace it and all of those kinds of things. But there are other things on your, on your list and their list which we um, think that we, we can do. Good. I, I'll leave I, it at that. Okay. I'll, I'll, I look forward to following up with you on this. Now, on the sanctions front, and again, I applaud the administration for the approach you've taken to sanctions um, and the efforts with our allies to make sure that, to the extent possible, we can do that in unison in a coordinated way, and, and the fact that you've uh, imposed the same sanctions on Belarus. You know, I looked at that UN vote. It was impressive, 141, uh, 35 abstentions, five no's, uh, probably the no's we expected. But I will say among the 35 abstentions, there were many disappointments, uh, many countries that we consider our friends and fellow democracies who uh, were, stood on the sidelines at an important moment. Um, in terms of the sanctions, many of those countries that abstained are not joining us right now in terms of the sanctions. And I do understand that the arms export control sanctions have a long arm effect uh, so that uh, it's not necessarily their choice right. as to whether to comply. But when it comes to banking sanctions, they do not have the long arm effect unless we apply secondary sanctions. Yeah. So the administration has the authority to apply secondary sanctions. I don't think you need any more authority or hoops you need to jump through in order to justify not imposing them in certain circumstances. But with respect to countries that are participating in allowing Russia relief from our banking sanctions, are you considering applying secondary sanctions in those cases? You're talking about some of the the no votes on the on the list there, I assume? I'm talking about countries who are not currently voluntarily participating with us in our economic, the, the banking sanctions. So uh, I would the good news was the EU is with us, you know, other countries are with us, but there are other major countries uh, yep. that Russia could turn to as a sort of off-ramp on some of those sanctions. So, Senator Van Hollen, our first choice is to try to persuade those countries that this is not a moment to try to be neutral or sit on the fence and to join us in sanctions. That will be far better, far better for their sustainability, et cetera, and far better in terms of ensuring that those countries themselves don't become havens for dirty Russian money. So that's the case that we're making. Um, all of us are working very hard on that with, uh, I'm going to guess, the same countries of concern to you. Well, I appreciate that. I just think that, um, you know, the, the major step was to have the major economic powers on board, European mm -hmm. community. You did that. And the Asians. Asian and, and Japan and Singapore and South Korea and Australia, yep. all really New good. Zealand. But there are, as you just indicated, uh, we know, big exceptions. And so it seems to me at some point all of the countries that are already in yep. would have an interest in joining with us in putting pressure on those who were still out. And we've been making that point as well. The president did, did in his conversation yesterday with uh, 
other major country leaders and we're trying to get the support of the G7 to, to broaden this community as much as we possibly can. And I think you'll see us uh, making some forays to some of those places in, in the days and weeks ahead. I, I hope you're successful. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank, thank you. you. Senator Risch. Uh, thank you. In uh, following up on what Senator Van Hollen said, uh, uh, first of all, I, I have no difficulty at all with you guys trying to persuade other countries to go along, but if he is suggesting what I think he was suggesting, and that is that secondary sanctions ought to be on the table, and you ought to have them at the ready in the toolbox to use if it's necessary to help these other countries get to where they need to be, I hope you're all in on that. I certainly am, and I suspect maybe that's what Senator Van Hollen was suggesting. If he is, I want to associate myself uh, with those remarks. Um, let me turn to another subject just briefly. Uh, we've got a vote started, and, uh, so uh, I'll try to make this brief. You, you and I are obviously in a different place on JCPOA, as we've discussed over the many years, I guess, that that's been kicking around. Uh, um, let's see if we can get some stuff with that we do agree with. Um, is there, let, let's set JCPOA aside. Let's say it never happened, it's, it's never there. Is there a major impediment for Iran to be able to finish the completion of a nuclear weapon? For it to be able to finish the completion of the nuclear weapon. Is there a major impediment? Yes. Well, let me suggest this. Would you agree with me that the country of Israel is a major impediment for them to be able to complete the uh, nuclear weapon? Uh, I would agree with you that Israel has regu regularly and frequently taken matters into their own hands with regard to trying to slow or stop a weapon. I would Indeed, not- Indeed, they're the only ones that have, really. I, I don't think I would agree with that, but we can talk about that in a classified right, session. that's fine. Um, I, I would not say that I believe that that is uh, achievable as a complete end state in the short run by Israel alone. Uh, and uh, I would disagree with you on that, but it, I would agree that it's an arguable point. Um, but, but you have heard Israel, as I have, probably face-to-face -face as I have, over and over state that the, in very plain, simple language, that they will never permit Iran to develop a nuclear weapon that could uh, threaten their, their existence. Is that a fair statement? They have said that, and they've said that across two administrations. Do you believe them? I believe that that is their intent. I think there's a question of... A bill. I, I, I think we should, yeah, talk about this probably in another setting. I, 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 and that's fair. I, I agree with that. Well, I, I for one, believe them. And so uh, I, I have uh, long said that if you believe them, that threat for Iran is significantly stronger threat than anything the JCPOA could put on the table. Uh, so uh, in any event, at least part of this we agree on, and uh, I guess we all, well, let me ask another question, see if you agree with this. I always like it, Ranking Member Rich, when we can find places to agree. I couldn't agree more. So let's see if we can find one more area and then I'll, I'll let this be. Um, did you watch the, uh, the, debate, the debates of the 18 Republican uh, candidates uh, for president in the last election. I sure did. Yeah. What did they to say? To the extent they were, I could what, stand it. What did they, including one of them was just sitting here, what did they say they were going to do with the agreement uh, the, the first day they were in office? 
Uh, rip it up, I guess. Yeah, that's what they said. And uh, indeed, uh, the election, uh, uh, the, the, the successful person actually did that. My guess is that we're going to have 18 again uh, in, here in a few years. And my guess is that they're probably all going to take the exact same position that happened last time. Do you think that that is more likely than not? Uh, Senator, I don't think I want to get out my crystal ball with regard to where your, your colleagues and your um, fellow party members might be. I would hope that if, the, if we come back into the agreement and it begins to prove its worth, that we won't have that debate again. But, you know, we'll see where the, where the world turns. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to be that optimistic about it, but I'm, I'm, I can't be in as much as I know a number of those people, and I know what they're going to do. And I'm, the, I'm a and diplomat. The, I'm paid to be an optimist. Yeah, but, um, the, and that's the difficulty with this whole thing, is that, uh, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I had to deal with people, and you probably did too, saying, well, you Americans, you broke the deal. You, you breached the deal. And I said, no, 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 no. You had no deal with us. Our Constitution is crystal clear. If you want to deal with America, it's got to be done by submitting it to the United States Senate and get a two-thirds vote, at which point their eyes glaze over and say, I don't know about that. But uh, I said, but you did have a, a, an agreement with Barack Obama. I'll agree with that. And uh, this time they'll have an agreement with Joe Biden. But uh, uh, you, you would agree with me that the efficacy of the agreement with the president without Senate ratification will have the same legal effect that the previous JCPOA had on the next administration. Would you agree with that? I mean, obviously, whenever you have an agreement that has Senate ratification, that tends to indemnify it better against being ripped up by one side or the other, but not always, as we've seen with some treaties. Thank you very much, and uh, I'm glad we found some common ground. <laughs> Thank you, Senator. Madam Secretary, one final question. You've been ex extraordinarily insightful here for the better part of two hours. It, is it fair to say that Ukraine is the epicenter uh, in Europe of oil and gas lines? You mean the main crossing point? Uh, I mean, technically speaking, I think there are more lines that cut through Germany than Ukraine, but Ukraine is an essential node, if that's what you mean. Right. Yeah. And so if Putin were to achieve his conquest of Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 would be insignificant to him. Uh, yeah, of, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because because he'd have all of these pipelines that he could control. So uh, I, I just find it, uh, you know, everybody's um, welcome to their opinion, but they're not welcome to their facts. Uh, <laughs> to believe that uh, Nord Stream is the reason that uh, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine is, uh, is a bit of a stretch, to say the least. Uh, I, I uh, do think uh, that the incredible uh, importance of this issue is exemplified by the fact that 19 of 22 members have been here today uh, asking questions and engaging with you. Uh, that's not always the case on the subject matters that we have before the committee, but just shows the intensity on both sides of the aisle. I want to send a message to our friends across the globe who did not join us at the United Nations and who are not joining us 
uh, in some of the actions they could be taking. You really should rethink what side of history you want to be on. You really should think again about what side of history you want to be on because the world is watching and we are watching. And then lastly, I hope that the 44 nominees before the committee and the 22 that are pending on the floor can see swift justice uh, in terms of getting a vote because we need everybody on the field uh, to make sure that Putin loses at the end of the day. I'm thankful uh, with the ranking member for those who have gotten out today, uh, but we need to, to do more. With that, the record for this hearing will remain open until the close of business on Wednesday, March the 9th. Please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than Wednesday. And with the deep thanks of the committee for your appearance and all of the insights, this hearing is adjourned.